Ready? You ready? Okay, roll the tape. And... Welcome back to the Common Intellectual. We have a very special guest, Steve Aukers, who's one of my professors at Ursinus College, who helped change my mindset to prepare for the real world. As you'll tell through this conversation, he helps many people with changing their mindset and has many incredible experiences on how he was able to do so. So, let's get to it. Enjoy the experience. We're live. Steve Aukers, awesome. welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining. Good to see you, man. Yeah. It's good to be here. I'm glad. So, you know, we've talked many times before. I had you as a professor at Ursinus for strategic analytics, a very business-heavy course, uh, learning about what it's really like in the corporate world, which you are very qualified for, and we will go into in more detail in the future. But one thing I do want to touch on, uh, since it was the inspiration of the podcast, the class, the common intellectual experience at Ursinus, you were also a professor of. So what was that experience like going from the business world to the f- very unique course of CIE? Um, I, didn't, I didn't think it was much of a, a change. Um, frankly, it, that sounds a little weird to say, primarily because... You know, my PhD is is a you know doctor of philosophy, right? And and I spent, you know, ten year, nine years. Part of that was philosophical, you know, talking about philosophers and philosophical understanding. And so that that for the, the leap to that was very easy, um, from a conceptual standpoint. From a content standpoint, um, you know, I knew of the authors, you know, and at some point. Over the last 52 years, I, I read much of it, but but reading it, that versus teaching it is a very very different experience. So, but in terms of a comfort zone, yeah, I was all in. I mean, it was um, I, I I like it, the that type of class is um, to me very akin and not that dissimilar, frankly, to a PhD seminar, right? So the way PhD programs work is you you the exception of um, statistics courses or hardcore science or research design courses. The rest of it is a seminar where everyone comes to the class and you, 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 you don't have a textbook. You've got various readings and research articles and you, you teach each other and you read and it's, it's facilitated by the professor. And so from that standpoint, CAE is exactly that. Now, the, the challenge I found is that um, 
actually one of your, your teammates, Josh, who I value greatly, by the way, I've had in three or four classes now. And I, I just love his intellect and his energy. And he's such a good guy. Um, he's got a wonderful future. And he's always good to have in the class because he talks a lot. And I, I really value that. He throws himself into it. But he made a comment at the CIE one year. He goes, the first year, he goes, well, we don't have any life experience yet. Right? And so that really hit me hard. Like, oh, okay, that, that's what's going on here. So when you're 18 and haven't been, no, there's exceptions. And I'm really generalizing. And there are some kids in the class, in fact, a lot of kids ahead difficult things, drug stuff or um, parents dying. I mean, big, big things that they were dealing with. And so they had to wrestle. But for the most part, the other students didn't, right? And so he's like, we're not ready yet for this. Like, well, we just, we haven't been wrestling with these questions. So the only challenge I found is making it relevant around what's important to them, right? And I, I think it's more of a life stage thing. It's not an intellect thing at all. It's more of a life stage. Where are you and what's important to you? And, and, you know, out of each class, I had two or three students who were really engaged, like intellectually deep. What affects some of your, your um, lacrosse students, actually lacrosse, fellow lacrosse kids are pretty engaged. And the rest, you get a couple that really don't care. It, I think it's just where they are. Um, but from an intellectual standpoint, I mean, I, I was um, really in a good place. Right. I mean, one that the, the, the precursor was a two week or two and a half week seminar where all the faculty, not I shouldn't say all, but maybe 15 to 20 of us get together. and We spend every day. And that that was profound. I've done it twice now um, between Christmas and and um, the break and spring semester. That was profound. I mean, just hearing other perspectives and Paul Stern, if you've ever had him, he's brilliant. Um, political scientist and he just facilitated it and it was you could feel yourself growing and how you see the world and certainly I loved hearing the other professors view around what they thought about the texts and I think that that was a profound thing is you think there's one answer or one way to understand Freud or Karl Marx or um, Stuart Mill um, John Stuart Mill and the reality is no. I mean, there's so much you can pull from it. And the, the, the lens to which the various professors interpreted it were very different, particularly since we're from different disciplines, right? And I, I thought that was profound, right? So for me, I, that interim experience was great. And even the class, I mean, just the, the things I picked up from the students, once, probably once or twice a class, someone would say something, I go, man, I, I never thought of it that way. Like it never dawned to me to look at an issue through that lens. And when I walk away, change like that, to me, that was a gift. It's, it's powerful, right? And even in the papers, I mean, the papers, particularly this last semester versus the first year, they were pretty intimate. One of the students said, hey, we need to, you know, diversity monologues was a thing and that really hit them hard. And uh, you were all grumpy to go to begin with. But then when you got there, like, oh, this is something people telling about their life stories. And so one of the students said, well, well, can we write our own? And that was hard because everyone loved doing it. Well, I shouldn't say everyone, probably 70% loved doing it. There are a few that were really nervous, but me reading them, I was like, the intimacy, I was very humbled by some things they said and, and the, some of the journeys they had and, and the demons that they're wrestling with. Um, I felt their pain. Um, 
as a professor, I, I want to move them forward. As a parent, I, I want to hug them and get them out of that pain. And, and, and then you realize that shared human journey we all have. And, and I think that veneer we talked about in a class that veneer everyone comes to class with is, I got my act together. I know my shit. Man, I, I am God's gift. And beneath the surface, man, there's a lot going on, right? And we all have that, right? We show up in a normative way around, here's how I need to be with you. And so that the human angst and, and anxiety and, and, and adventure we have is really, um, we hide that. And when that comes out, that to me, that, that connective tissue that we have or that, that the sinew between you and me and, and others and that shared human journey that we never talk about. I find that so odd in terms of human behavior, how we all have things and often it's the same thing. Like often it's the same pain or the same anxiety or the same nervousness, whatever it is, yet I'm not going to tell you I'm having it. You're having the same thing often at the same time, yet we're going to show up strong and we're going to show up like John Wayne and we're going to show up not showing a weakness and, and, and we're going to be a man and we're going to walk it off. And yet there's pain there or there's uh, fear or confusion or um, I don't know. And, and that, you know, I found that interesting, you know, and, and certainly you and I talked about vulnerability and um, it, it's, it's quite an amazing gift to get across that bridge to being very vulnerable with people where suddenly you say, and, and you know, I'm not like this. I'm not like, Hey, we need a safe space, but when you cross a place where it's a safe place to, be in that space where you know that we're in it together. And when that happens, it's pretty profound. You know? I, I think you made an interesting point about how it lives right underneath the surface. And when you do go through those first 18 years, you think everything is cookie cutter. And so I remember freshman year reading uh, Shakespeare, and that was something that quite frankly went over my head because I didn't understand, especially that age, that there can be different meanings taken out of that right. language. Yeah. And then you go into CIE, of course, with your fellow classmates, but it is the first time that you're on your own. And I think you realize that nothing is cookie cutter and you're able to break out of that mold, understand that other students are going through issues. And I remember day one, it was very difficult to speak. And it was something that it was like a little bit, you're too cool to, to talk. And then you start seeing other people speak and you start to understand that everybody has that surface and then the layer below and trying to, to go into that. And I think as a professor, there's either the professors that go and try and dictate the conversation and ones that kind of stay out. And how do you kind of find your style? And obviously you're still finding your style, but what kind of things do you think of? That's a really good question. I am, um, I'm aware of that. In fact, I think I talked to the class last semester, the first day about that is I'm very aware of 18 year old, 52 year old dynamic and this perception of power uh, and professor all knowing and, and I'm a student and you're supposed to tell me things, right? And I'm supposed to listen and take notes. And, and I, I was very aware of that dynamic. I said, listen, we gotta get rid of that. I'm not any smarter than you guys are. I just have more life experience. Um, I happen to be deeply reflective, which may or may not meet your style. And so I try to, in the same way when I run a company, is, is dictating to really doesn't work or it's not sustainable. That It's got to be intimacy. It's got to be a one-on-one. -on -one. 
um, and this is not, I don't mean this in a religious way because I'm, I'm not a, a, a born again type of person, but this evangelical um, approach, one-on-one -on -one movement. And so I, I, I made it very clear that um, one, I, I didn't have an agenda, right? And it bothered me that some professors, a good chunk of them walked in with a very strong agenda, either politically or whatever, that they wanted to make sure that everyone fit into that mold. And so the students I recognized were very programmed to spit back um, what they thought I wanted to hear to get a good grade. Whether that's an agenda, whether that's a certain view on racism or a certain view on whatever, right? And, and that's dangerous, right? So I had to create an environment where there's no right and wrong. My opinion doesn't supplant your opinion. My opinion doesn't mean I'm right. It's just my opinion. Um, and we need to get all those things, those, those opinions out and actually have a, a deep dialogue. And that, that's a hard, that's a very hard thing to do because you need to live it. Like saying it is one thing, but th that, that can be a, a real load of BS unless you're actually really living it in the vibe and, and being very gentle with how you're holding people's opinions and having a dialogue with folks and encourage them to talk, particularly the ones that are more quiet and try to reduce that power gap or perceived power gap of well you know everything and, and I don't and, and try to give them permission to dissent like there's tremendous power in dissent there's tremendous power in looking at something through multiple lenses right in fact the the, the um, some of the greatest scientists and philosophers talk about this notion of looking at something through other lenses on purpose looking at something I think one of the guys was talking about looking at something askew on purpose from a and a really weird angle and seeing it completely differently, right? And, and trying to get that in the class, I, I think is really important. So the one of the things I think I do really well is that. Like I'm really bad at the gamifying and the whole icebreakers. I'm not, that's not me, that's not, no, it's not gonna work. I, I, I just can't be inauthentic. So I show up authentic. I, I'm just like this, right? Good and bad. I mean, that drives some people crazy and I, I, that hurts me, but there's nothing I can do about it. But yet I try to reduce that distance between me and, and, and the others in the room so that we can have a full conversation and, and give them a comfort zone around the fact that um, there's not an answer. I'm not looking for an answer, right? All I'm looking for is your opinion that is well thought out, that you can have backup to, and we can play with it a little bit. There's nothing more freeing and frankly, innately human, right, than a... Um, a debate about ideas where it, you're really playing with them intellectually and spiritually and emotionally, and you're really in them a little bit or a lot of it, that there's something beautiful about that. And so yeah. I try to create that. It doesn't always work. It depends who's in the class and you know, it, it can be hot. It can be tough. Yeah. And I think authenticity plays a huge role as well. I remember you on day one of the strategic analytics course, and it was very apparent that you were a different style of professor just based off of, one, the projects that we were handed and the content that we were learning as well. You had a textbook for the class, but it was really more of a conversation. We had a much smaller class, but even then we started off with our decision briefs and breaking down all the aspects of the company that we were looking at, which was Tesla at the time. And we just couldn't think that way. And you as somebody who has experience building companies, 
it's something that comes very easily to you and you have the life experience. But like you said, looking through our lens, it's something completely different and something that we've really never seen before. Yeah, you've never seen and you haven't been asked to. Yes. Right. And and that's the thing that that I really and I haven't broken the code and I'm really reflective on it and I feel a little bit like a failure. Like I can't speed that learning up and I don't quite know how um, to teach that. Like it, it's up here. Like I know everyone else teaches down here at this level and they want, and I, where I go is no, no, no. I want you guys to be here and think of all this yet. I don't always know how to deconstruct that real deep world um, comprehensive ecosystem ish learning. But yet I know you guys can be there. Right. So that journey, I think, is is difficult. And that's going to take time to you know, how do you because there's pain involved. There's tremendous pain. You guys are in pain. You, you guys are not used to gray. All students at this level are not used to gray. Right. And that's the problem here. It's gray. There's no answer, just like the real world. Right. So you when you're dealing with situations where you have nothing but gray and very little is concrete, yet you still must understand, evaluate, judge, make a decision put a plan of action, put a strategy in place, move forward, make a decision. That's a real world, right? You're never going to have all the data, all the information you need. And so that, you know, forcing you guys in that environment is, um, I'm hoping uh, a really important first mini step to thinking differently about the world. Yeah, right? I definitely. Think I don't know how I got there. You know, I, I don't know. Yeah, I was literally just going to ask, I was like, how, how would you get there? Because I think you were the first professor to really open my mindset up to it, where we had the CIE course, we had gone through it, but I don't think we understood at that level what the real world is truly like. And I didn't have that understanding until I had your course. And we've talked about this, that spreadsheet that understood not only yourself as a company, but the competitors as well. And so being able to look at all aspects of the company and where you're going and then being able to dissect it, like you said, was something I've never been approached with. And so you were the first person to do it and you did so very aggressively. We had presentations and I remember you sitting in the third row and it was like a boardroom. We were presenting and you were criticizing and it was a very- Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, no one was fired, but you felt that pressure. It was quite like a boardroom. (laughs) No, 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 absolutely not. But, but I, I can at least replicate it to being in your coach's office where everything you say, you want to make sure is, is done right. And that's how it should be because you want to show that you've done the research and that you've had uh, tools to be able to prepare for what you're about to give everybody as information and you want to make sure that it's accurate. Do you, so if you don't remember that exact time, do you have somebody in your life that was really impactful uh, as to giving you that executive mindset? That's a good question. Um, no, I, there, there were lessons, right? I mean, there, there, I think all of us have moments, the, 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 Oh shit moments where you're really humble and hit over the head and you're like, oh, you know, and I, I recall very directly um, my first job out of college. Um, it, was, it was a big national company. It was a, it was a big global printing company, uh, pretty big at the time, second in the nation. And we had, 
you know, like 17 plants and we had, we, I, we had fortune big clients and, and my, my district manager, my manager was in the office and my, my district manager spent time in the office and he, the training took six months. It was really hard because we had to make the products ourselves and we had to spec them for the plants. And he gave me a stack of his stuff and said, hey, Ockers, go do this. So it was maybe 30, 30 jobs. And so the first five I get to, I go, this is easy. And, and so I go back to Jim, Jim, I go, Jim, um, all of this done uh, two days. Okay. He goes, okay. So two days later, I go to him, I go, and they got harder. And I, I was like, oh my God. And he, he, I came to him, I go, I'm not going to be done. And he sat me down and says, listen, Uncles, don't ever promise something you can't deliver, ever. And he, he sort of yelled, scared the shit out of me. I was really intimidated. And he was dead on right that I made an assumption that my timing would be such that I would have it in two days. And he knew, and he didn't say a word, that there was no way in God's green earth that this was going to be done in two days. And he said, he, I said, I'm going to let you hang yourself. And I did. I completely hung myself because I wasn't nearly done. And I was working really hard. And it, it was just, it was too hard. Now, I got them all done. It just took so much longer because he stacked them from easiest to hardest, you know, easiest to most complex. And I, I was screwed. I go, there's no way. And then I remember in, in grad school, halfway through a PhD program, um, I got shuffled to um, Jim Reidenauer, who was a, a different guy, who was um, with the first Bush administration. And he was in the cabinet and he ran the National Park Service. And so really nice guy, really um, unassuming. Like if you saw him, you, you would go, God, he's dressed like a pig. He, he just seemed, didn't seem articulate. Yet you see him in action and you go, oh my God, this guy is, just, you can see why he was a CEO of a company and why he ended up being with the, 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 the first Bush. And he, I go, I get it. But there was a moment where I think, not I think, he said, um, I had to do the budgets for him. And so we had two different budgets and he goes, um, what's with this budget thing here? And I, I had it all nailed out, big university stuff, all this kind of, it, it was a re, like a research institute or a consulting institute. And I go, hey, Jim, I think it's this. And he turned to me and he goes, I don't pay you to think I pay you to know when you know, come back. And I was like, Oh shit. And then the next day he goes, you know, Ockers, I went from 16,400 16, people to you get your act together. And I was like, Oh my God. Right. So I, I, I was like, he wasn't yelling, but it was, it was a pretty in your face. You know, those are the moments where you, it's grow up, like really grow up, you know? And so those things stuck with me. Those lessons have never left. And then I think the other thing is once you are in the real world and you see things around you that um, when you do a half-baked job and there's tremendous pain on the back end of, no, it's not what we're looking for, um, that hurts. And that always stuck with me. Is, is my take was, no, no, you want to do, I, I got to kill this. Then I'm not getting in a room with some executives or my boss or the board and I'm not going to get crushed here. I'm going to be overprepared. I'm going to have it nailed. I'm going to have the back ends really understood what the politics are. I think that's what propelled that preparedness. It just takes once. It just takes you walking into a room once and someone asking you, that's why I hit you guys hard. What about this? Did you think about this? Because you can't walk in a room and them ask you a question you don't know. That can never happen, right? You need to think of literally everything. And that sounds ridiculous, but it's a must. There is nothing that cannot be thought of. And so, because it, otherwise it, it is just so painful, right? In fact, I, when I was turning our company around, my, my CEO, 
I hated her guts. And I was second in command of the company, of a big global company. Um, we had people like in 80 countries and it's like 16,000 employees. And, and um, we would go into this um, auditorium and I, I tried to coach these people beforehand. It's like, listen, here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna walk in, you're gonna get about a minute. And you get a minute in, and if you're not focused and don't aren't precise with your numbers and your strategy where you're headed, she's gonna cut you off and she's gonna fire you. And sure enough, she, you get a minute or two in, and she would be like, I don't like this, blah, 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 and start attacking you. And I was like, guys, I warned you. <laughs> It's got to be on and precise. She's irrational and, and doesn't make any sense. But dude, it, it, you've got to be buttoned up and precise. It's not about what I think. It's about what that person thinks, right? You've got to have your act together. So that's where that, that constant vigilance. And I've been in board meetings before I became a CEO with, with an executive CEO who would have an offhand, offhand comment. And you're like, oh, what was that offhand comment? And the whole direction of the company changes. Suddenly, a new initiative, a new product is launched. We buy a company, we sell a company off of an offhand comment in a meeting or someone getting grilled in front of you. And you're like, oh, that is painful. So that type of stuff shapes you in a way where I don't want you guys going through that because I know what's going to happen. I've been through the pain. I don't want my students through that pain. I want you to be in that room, the one who's prepared, has your act together, and just kills it. So that's what's driving that, that sense. And I'm also very aware of awareness. Like the ones who got crushed, and the companies that didn't do well, were the ones that were, there was an arrogance around, we're the best, or an arrogance around, we know where we're headed. And they didn't, they weren't vigilant, or paranoid about competitors, the market shifts. My take always was, this is a moment in time, it's Monday, or right now it's Thursday, the world can change tomorrow on, on Friday, and it probably will, and we better be prepared to pivot. Therefore, I am never, ever, ever comfortable in our current position, tactics, strategy, anything, because it's not sustainable. So if you're, you have to be aware of changes around you internally to the organization, externally to what's going on with the market, with the consumer, and be hyper-vigilant of everything that's going on because you need to make decisions within that context. The same thing for us, right? If, even if you're in an organization, you need to know where the politics are, where the companies and organizations have energy that move, right? You need to know where the energy moves and where that, that momentum shifts so you can use it. Otherwise, it's like a um, tsunami that runs you over, right? You got to ride the wave. If you're not aware of that wave is where that wave is going or where the politics are, you're going to get crushed. And there's times when I have had, um, I've pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and nothing happens and you're just like, I'm exhausted. And you realize, you know what? I'm doing this wrong, right? There's a mo in instead of pushing against that, that resistance, if I'm just very vigilant about being knowing everyone in the company, knowing everything that's going on, knowing all their agendas, playing all that, and there's a right moment, and it's, I'm thinking, all the stars align, you go, what about this? And suddenly things slide through easy. So I go, why don't you find those moments? That only comes from being very aware, very aware of what's going on around you. So I think all that stuff to me is, is very tied together. Well, it takes getting drilled down as well. When you, when you get drilled in a presentation, 
I remember the first time I was, and I was not ready for it. I was not comfortable, and it it made me very uncomfortable. And I addressed the professor, oh, yeah. and it was something that I obviously regret doing, but it was something that I had to understand that from her point of view, I was wrong. If we're going to look at it from an econometric standpoint and understand what data you're pulling from and who is your sample and how significant is that sample, I did it all wrong. I just wasn't there yet. And so being grilled only makes you grow. And it's to understand that there is a lot of factors. And if you don't look at those factors, then someone else is. They know that. And then they're going to win. They're going to win every time because you, you're at a yeah. big company who's always looking to change. And if you're not looking there's nothing there, more painful. There's nothing more painful, Elliot. And I, I, no joke, no exaggeration, probably given five, six, 10,000 presentations to, to Fortune 100s. And I, I can't tell you how many corporate headquarters I've been in. But man, if, if they ask a question you're not ready for, it is the pain is unbelievable because then you're dancing. And then, and then I don't believe in lying, right? So I, I, I refuse to ever lie in front of my boss or a client because they will find out. that truth will come out and it's going to be really ugly. You cannot hide that, okay? So if you say, oh yeah, two days. Well, guess what? Two days is gonna come. You're not gonna be ready. You gotta call someone saying, yeah, we're not ready. That's worse, right? So when we would always do things like war game it. Like I remember once we went up to SCJ for, we were trying to get a huge, like half their entire spend for an entire category. It was massive. And what's SCJ? Yeah, SC Johnson. Oh, SC Johnson, thank you. Yeah, up, up in Wisconsin. And we must have stayed up to four o'clock in the morning, morning war gaming. Like just, okay, if they say this, what are you gonna say? Okay, if they bring this up, we would just try to trip each other up. The whole, whole point, and that was our whole thing is, what could someone skewer? So we, we put our idea out there and then, then our purpose, we would say, how bad is this? And we would, we would try to deliberately trip each other up and, and find all the faults on purpose and go, oh, there's a fatal flaw. It's always looking for the fatal flaw. And then we'd be able to say, okay, here are the three things we think we're weak on. How are we going to explain this? And that's the way we would handle everything. Anything that goes up is we're going to war game it. We're going to, put it through, we're going to vet it through some sort of system here where we are really pushing it harder than they're going to push. So if it breaks, we break it and they don't break it. Right. So that way, when you get in that environment, it's nailed. There's nothing they're going to ask that you're not prepared for. Right. And it's that level of thinking through the comprehensive nature. And that's the thing is, is out of all these thousands of things, you don't want them asking something you weren't ready for because that is just. And I push you guys hard on the comprehensiveness of stuff. Right. And that, that's what will get you. Someone's going to come out of left field and go, oh, my God, I never thought of that. You know what? You have to. You have to think of the consequences. You have to think of what, what's going to come up here that I wasn't ready for and be ready to pivot on that or have a really good answer of why that's not important and say, yeah, we mm-hmm. thought of that, but here's why we're not taking that into consideration. We're moving forward. And I love that it's called war games because we've talked plenty of times on how similar playing on a sports field is to being in the business world, how you are taking that, war mentality and going from like you've said in the past your village versus mine to defend that and understand that this is a competition and it needs to be won at all costs 
Yeah, I, I know that sounds aggressive, um, but I felt that way. I mean, it was personal for me. It was me against you, my guys against your guys, my women against your women. My how did it become? How did it become personal for you? Because I, I recognized that if I lost, a company lost. If the company lost, people could lose their jobs, and and that becomes personal. Once you start protecting your folks, when you realize that connection of if I don't win this deal, or if this doesn't go well with whatever, then there's consequences on my side. I haven't done my job protecting the people. I'm the sheepdog, right? I'm supposed to protect my herd. And if I didn't win against the wolf, my people are going to get eaten, right? So that, that's part of it. The other part of it is just sheer, I, I want to win, right? And so I, I had a hard time walking into like a Ford Motor Company or General Motors, and you would w often walk into a very formal, um, procurement setting where you knew the competition was there they might be in the waiting room and you're eye to eye and you're like it's me against you man and and you want to kick their ass and, and you're in that attack mode and it's literally the future of your company could be on the line there could be tens of millions a hundred millions of dollars on the line and you're like i gotta win and so it was inconceivable for me that someone would beat me that someone would be smarter or work harder or think through it more hard or, or more more comprehensively or not have their team more aligned. Like that, that part of it, those excuses, can, that cannot be an excuse. Us being not prepared is not an excuse, right? If we lose, I can handle that. But we gotta watch, just like in a, 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 athletics, right? We better be the most prepared. We better have, we better have lifted. We better have our running in. And it, we're not gonna lose on that. If they, have, if they have better players, so be it. I'm not gonna be happy about it, but we're not gonna lose if we didn't put the effort in. Right. And so generally, if, if I was comprehensive enough around what the competition was doing, who they were, what their agenda was, predict what's going on. I generally often knew the client's company better than the client did. Right. I'd be able to figure out I'd sell two, three levels up. I got this guy here, but I'm selling this person, this person. What's the CEO's agenda? If I can figure that out and slide it in, I'm going to win. So we, we would go in very smart with that. What do you mean by sell to the person? Um, for example, let's say we had a, a um, I don't know, $10 million deal for something, that, that, that kind of thing for, for research or consulting services for mm. SE Johnson or Unilever or Boeing or uh, UPS or FedEx, that type of thing. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So I, I mean, I just think to, to be able to correlate those two things, it, I feel it now, I feel as though every day you're having to go in with a different level of not only preparation but also an understanding of where we are strategically aligned and especially with our current climate being in a pandemic we're seeing that even more so you have to pivot at a moment's notice and every week every day things are changing for companies and as yeah. a global brand you have to be at the forefront of all of that even though you're getting the information at the same time. We, we were very nimble. We were exceedingly intellectually nimble on the fly in front of our clients. And if what we now, now realize we didn't have a set product, right? I was selling our brains. We were selling ideas. We were selling research and science. So that allowed that if I was selling Porsche, it's a different, a little bit of a different deal, right? It's a, or selling an iPhone, 
but we're walking in and, and there's a level of, you need to buy me, my brain, my intellect, my team smartness, how we convey, how I understand your needs. I mean, so it's, it's building trust, understanding. And after a while, instead of guessing, I, I would um, ask them things no one had asked them. So much so that the client would go, no one's ever asked that before. There you go. Like I would be direct, what's gonna win this? Or tell me how you're making this decision. What are your evaluation criteria? I, I, instead of walking out of there or at the end, always, how'd we do? And they'd be stunned. And like, what do you mean? Well, it was this or this or this. And so suddenly I knew then where we stood because I gave them permission to shit on us, right? Because I needed that, that intel, right? Instead of walking out and go, well, I think we did great. No, I'm gonna ask them. They didn't like it, they're gonna tell me. It's like, I think they tell you that story about the GM woman. So we, we got so. in, oh, this is the best. So we walk into um, General Motors and it, at the time they had Oldsmobile Pontiac was part of the, the thing. So you had the, the president of each of the, the divisions was in the room and they had this little, um, it was like a uh, auditorium kind of thing, but it was, it was long and narrow and, and they all sat up on the one corner uh, up like this. And I walked in, I noticed a Cadillac woman, just the president of Cadillac was just, she was giving me the evil eye. I go, man, she hates us or hates me. And, and we, we, had, we had a really good program. And so um, we spent a couple hours with them. And at the end, I turned to her and I go, I'm sensing you're not liking this. And she goes, no, I am not happy. And she just shit all over us. It was a misunderstanding. I go, no, no, no. I go, walk me through what's going on. She goes, I, I, and I go, wait, wait, hold on. No, this is what's actually happening with the science. We're doing this, this, this statistics. She goes, oh, I'm good then. And we won the deal, right? And that, that was being attuned to mood, energy, vibe, being vulnerable, being open for being shit on, being um, human with acknowledging, hey, I, I sense you're not buying this. Walk me through what's in your head giving her permission to express that so, so we can have an adult to adult conversation as opposed to child to child conversation. And that, that's a very powerful tool, right? Of, of that sense of just acknowledging what we, we both know what's going on. She's pissed. She knows it. I know she's pissed yet for us not to acknowledge it. We walk away. It's going to be bad. Why don't we just be adults? And I'm going to, I acknowledge it. I, I'm a big boy. I can take it if you don't like me. Fine. So, and then we'll talk about it. And it was just one of those things, typical, her curve was here, my curve was here. We just misunderstood where we were. And I go, no, it's actually this. She goes, oh, we're all good. So there's real power in being aware of where someone is. And to me, that extends with interpersonal relationships, that situation, aware of markets, aware of shifts, being very sensitive to change. Like what is shifting and should I pivot? which I think most people don't. Like most people get stuck in organizations and leaders, get stuck in, here's our strategy, here's our plan, regardless of what's going on around us, man, we're gonna, we're gonna put this into the ground, we're not moving. And I'm more like, well, what's shifting? I mean, if, if all the evidence shows something shifting, maybe we need to adjust something in here or, or at least have that discussion and potentially be agile and pivot if we have to be, right? Right, and you're having to pivot all the time in when I can think of playing in a lacrosse game, playing in a hockey game, uh, yeah. but also just in everyday life by feeling those vibes. When you're having to pivot in a boardroom, it's something completely different. 
but when you're on a lacrosse field or any playing surface, you're having to trust that strategy, live by it, and then figure out how you can move on to the next play without thinking about what's happened in the past. And I'm still learning how to operate in a boardroom. And so when you're faced with those kind of vibes or feeling that it's not going the right way, how do you pivot and what kind of things should you be thinking of to have a similar mindset to an athlete? It's much like being a goalie in lacrosse, right? I think you can relate to this. I, I think of any position. I might. Yeah. Position, <laughs> you're going to get pounded, right? They may put in 19 goals. You just need 20 on your end, right? So if you get in your head 10 goals in and you are just deflated, you can't function, can you? Right? You got to shake it off. Next play, move on and be very, very present. And I know you've been through that. You, you get what that is like. You get what it takes to have to think differently in the moment and go, listen, this is not working. I need to shift and I, I need to, to, to fight this through. It's the same thing. It's that same notion of particularly um, what I found, the worse it got, the calmer I got. Like the, the bigger of the disaster it got, for some reason, mm. I would be like, no worries. We got that. What's going on? I'm talking economy crashing, great recession, um, tornado hitting the building, something flooding, <laughs> being, being uh, sued, losing an employee, losing $62 million client. I mean, you're like, okay, that happened. Let's move on. What are we going to do? Like it, it, it really requires you. You really, you realize very quickly, I have to first and foremost, control the energy of what's going on. Right. Cause people, it's just like children or your dog, they look to you, should I get excited about this or not, right? And if you're like, no worries, things are fine, you got to control the mood and the energy, and then you got to dictate what our next steps are instantly. You can't, there's no time to live in the, holy shit, what just happened? Or, oh my God, I can't believe uh, um, Dan, Dan wants to, we, we have to fire Dan as a, as a client. Or, I can't believe this happened. I can't believe this building flooded. Or, I can't believe this person's going to leave. Or, I can't believe this person's suing us. If you're in that mode of the, I can't believe, you can't function. So instead it's like, okay, it's happening. So what, what are we going to do? That, that what are we going to do has to hit instantly and you've got to move forward. Now there's time on the back end for postmortems of, okay, how do we get here? But right now is not that time, right? The people around you are looking for control, navigation, identification, understanding of the issue at hand, focus, your job is to suss out from every, all the experts and you're not the expert in most of the stuff, right? You, other people are in the room. What do we do here? What's the impact? What does that mean? Tell me what's going to happen here. What's the worst that can happen? Give me the risk value. It's always about how much risk can we absorb the risk? What are the loss going to be? You go through all that and you say, okay, great. Here's what we're going to do, right? Your job is to calm it down and focus and move everyone forward to fix whatever it is. Right. If you get all wound up around the axle of, oh my God, something bad's going on, you can't you can't fix it. Right. right. So, you get in that. so the worse it got, it's almost the worse it got, the calmer. It's like, okay, no worries. Let's just we can handle this. Let's go. Focus yeah. the team. Right? Yeah. And I think a lot of people have the mindset that you spoke of where it's the I can't believe. And it's something that I'm still learning where 
as a now lacrosse coach down here in Atlanta, it's something that I have to understand my players at a different level and see that the players that are hitting themselves over the head with their stick after plays that they didn't make versus the players that don't care, you need to find that balance. And I had a dad reach out to me about his son playing and how he can work on his mental stability. And I told him about the book that I was given my sophomore year, Mind Gym, to be able to uh, look in internally and understand all of your success and your failure and visualize it on a different level and then be able to attack it. And you mentioned 19 goals. I don't know if you meant to do that, but my last college start was letting up 19 goals against Dickinson. And I remember reading a chapter of that book right before. Yeah, exactly. And so reading that book before, even though it was not the way that I wanted it to go, I had a player, Dylan Marr, get in my face after every single goal that he scored on me. And I think he scored six or seven. And every time he got in my face and I just didn't hear him. And my defense was stunned. It was like, how, how can you just ignore it? And uh, Nolan was coming off the bench saying, Shevitz is the mentally strongest person I've ever met. And it's like, how, how do you get to that level? And it's really visualizing okay. that success and then being able to realize this is the goal. We're still within reach. If I show that I'm wavering, then my defense is going to lose trust in me. Yes. And the, the offense, their team thinks they got to you. Yes. A hundred percent. Yeah. But I feel like, what was that? Sorry, go ahead. No, you're good. I just feel like it's even more important to have your own troops under control because in my mind, that's what you can control. Yeah. Cause here's the thing. We all have emotion and it's not that we don't have emotion. It's not that we suppress emotion. We don't have to act out of that emotion. Right. And that's a very gestalt psychology perspective of, okay, I have this emotion. It's really awareness of self, awareness of other management of self. And it's like, okay, I'm freaked out right now. Great. I'll park that. I need to be present. I can deal with that later and make sense of it. We call sense-making in psychology, right? I'll deal with that later. But right now something is happening. I need, I need to attend to. And that, that, that's part of it. And if you're an executive or running a company or running an organization, the realization that you have a role to play, matters right and part of the role is to be to, to be calm right part of the role is to organize and focus and and first off more than anything else manage and shape the energy and mood of an organization that's your first responsibility if you can't do that everything is lost right and so you have to snap into that mode of my job right now before i even make a decision is to control and shape the mood and energy and vibe of what's going on manage the because the, that spins out of control if you don't do that the oh my god or the 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 energy in your organization can can be destructive really fast right and so you can't let that happen right now it doesn't mean we're, we're naive it doesn't mean that you're deflecting it doesn't mean that you're going no everything's wonderful no you acknowledge this sucks it's a bad moment you have to be real okay this was horrible but right the second what are we going to do let's fix this Right, it, it's that authenticity around. Yep, this is bad, and we're gonna fix it, as opposed to, oh, it's all good, right? Because everyone around you gets going. That's not good. You pretending it's good when it's not is not gonna work. That's highly inauthentic, right? So you have to be that balance of authentic, real, 
admit what's going on, yet snap into a place where it's like, we got this. Okay, that, that, that's, that's focus on what we can control. And that's a really weird, you mentioned that specifically, right? Things you can control. There's so much, and a lot of my friends, my friend Kevin and I talk about this a lot, is we're younger, we thought we controlled everything. You get in your 40s and 50s, and if you live in a really big world that has, um, that is global in scale, you realize, oh my God, I'm not in control very much, am I? That's a very humbling thing, place to be at, particularly as a male. You're like, okay, I'm not in control of anything here. I'm only in control of navigating my ship around the icebergs. And, and, but that helps you free up a little bit because then I'm not getting anxiety over the stuff I can't control. Now, I, I have awareness around identifying the things I can't control. What don't I know? Knowing what I don't know, knowing what could kill, kill us, and then letting it go, identifying it, understanding, describing, that's going to be painful. But that's, let's mitigate that risk and control what we can control in this environment. It's a really big thing to, be, to being focused and not scattered. Yeah, well, controlling the controllables was, for me, the entry to becoming a starter at the college level was understanding that there are other players that are doing their job, and I have one job to do, understand shooter tendencies, understand what our defense is versus their offense, and we prepared for that. Similar to yeah. your your war games, you're, you're going exactly. through that in the film room, and so it's something that you battle with internally I felt more in high school and as a freshman but then once you understand how much work you put in how other people are putting in that work it really shifts to that mindset of you have a job and let's do it to the best of your ability and it's the coach's job to dictate that energy because we had our seasons that didn't go as well and you could feel the energy of the overall team go down. You could feel that people lost interest, that people didn't buy into the overall strategy. Maybe there was, a, a, honestly, the message just wasn't received from the coaching staff to the players to understand what the overall strategy was. And then when Coach Mercadante came in to understand what, what we hadn't done well, he was able to then apply the things that we needed to do at a very foundational level he even i i talked right. to him very recently and he put foundation on the first sheet that we had day one of classes and it said foundation and that was the start of our season august 27th two years ago today and yeah. so being able to have that and clearly understand it allowed you to like you mentioned free up a little bit realize that you're not in control of everything and then proceed the best way that you can. Part of the key to that, Elliot, I, I found is, um, this comes from pain, is when you're in a situation where you come forth with a plan and suddenly you're face to face with either your competition on the field or in a boardroom or with a client or in a meeting with a vendor and suddenly you realize the plan I had, I came in, I was wrong. And you go, oh shit. And, and you're in the middle of that emotion going, Oh my God, I'm getting pounded. Oh my God, this is not going the right direction. And, and if you're not aware that that's happening and you keep pushing through and trying to double down on your failed positioning or strategy, it, it goes bad really fast. So that's where I think I got much better at taking my idea and saying, okay, what I thought was going to happen is not happening. The ideas I came in that I thought were going to win, I, I've lost with. I need to pivot, I need to understand where they are, 
and pivot very quickly, abandon that position, don't hold on to it with a death grip and move. And instead of blindly moving, what I learned to do was say, hey, let's talk through, I said, once you get resistance, instead of um, forcing your way through it, which never works, ever, instead leaning into it and going, understanding it. So where's this coming from? Walk me through what's in your head. And suddenly they are then sharing how they're evaluating and understanding the world. And then you go, oh, I know right where to go now because you told me where to go because I asked you and you said this, this, and this. Okay, I got it. Now that my new plan is fixed exactly with that because I, I took the time to ask you as opposed to pushing through something that wasn't going well on my end, that was my fault because I assumed that you were going to do something, you did something different. Then you have, to, you have to adjust. That's where you get a covered zone of being wrong. Like that's where you walk in saying, listen, I'm okay being wrong in this situation because I know I can pivot based on what you need and get to where I need to go. And that just becomes a comfort zone around human interaction, awareness, understanding, being hyper aware of where the other person is, being vulnerable, dipping into where they are so you can get information to pivot, right? I'm not going to pivot blindly. Why would I do that? Right? I'm going to ask you stuff. You're going to tell me something and I'm going to go exactly where you, what you told me was important to you. Oh, really? Well, I'm going right there. Right? That, that, that flow works. And that, give, that calms you down a little bit. Because then when you walk in a situation where it's not going well, I can let that go much quicker. I can go, this isn't working. Gone. What's going on? And you, 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 it allows you to pivot and be very nimble very quickly. As opposed to then going, oh my God, the planet has not working. And my idea isn't working. I, I must not know what I'm doing. Oh my God, things are unraveling. I'm going to lose my job. All that stuff spins out of control, right? You let it go. Just let it go. Yeah, when I find that I have a plan, a lot of the times it's abandoned. And it's also yeah. something internally when I have that plan and it goes the other way in the past, I have been very uncomfortable. But then it's once you take a step back to realize that, okay, they have reservations about this. Let's dip into that. And my friend Gerard Brown, who talked to me the semester before I graduated, he told me, he said, after the interview, just straight up ask him, say, do you have any reservations about this interview? What could I be doing better? And then they'll tell you, they're going to talk to you about exactly yep. what they're feeling. And then you're able to go in there and pivot and actually showcase your mind at that point since like you mentioned that's what you're selling at the end of the day is how quickly you can pivot what ideas you have and also take a step back and listen and as an executive that's everything well it's funny because most most of the time resistance well there's three levels of resistance right from a psychology standpoint right one is i don't understand the next level is I don't like it. And the third level is I don't like you, right? So it, it elevates. Like, I, I don't understand this. No, I don't like your idea. No, you're an asshole. You're a jerk. This isn't working, right? So you can't let it elevate. And most of that first level, the I don't understand is just that we have a misunderstanding about what's going on. So that's why slowing down, backing up, making sure that our, our cycles of experience of, of where I am, understanding a concept is the same place where you are. We love, need to level set that start over. And usually you're like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. We're good, right? But rarely do we back up with that, right? Rarely do we take the time to really go, I sense where, I cannot tell you how often I do that now where I'm talking to someone about something business. And I just go, are we, are we off, 
or I'll, I'll directly say, are, are we off? It seems like we're in different places. And that alone allows you to, instead of doing the, the typical elevation of the, of the argument or the fight, right? Even if it's just kind of a pissing contest, it instead it allows you to deflate the energy and we can have a very different conversation and find a way around, particularly if you're negotiating something, right? Or if you're trying to really suss out what's really going on, it makes a huge, a huge difference. And you know, the funny thing about the plan is it's like what Mike Tyson says, right? Everyone's in a plan until they get punched in the face. It's so true, right? So you walk in with a plan. So I, I typically have plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, plan E. Often I'll be very deliberate about that. Like often I will tell people, listen, we need to plan E. I need five plans. We need fallbacks. And we will be very prescriptive about, okay, if we get hit, what's our second fallback? What's our third fallback? What's our fourth fallback? And we all know that. Like we're not going in until all of us in this room know that. So when we're in front of somebody, we're not arguing amongst ourselves. That we all know where our fallback defensive position is going to be fall back two, three, four, so that if anyone was just talking, they can go there if it, if it comes up and being very thoughtful about wargaming. If this happens, what are we going to do? If they say no here, where can we go? If this, if, if we don't get this on price, if we don't get this on relationship, do we need pivot point here? Where are their strengths? Where are our weaknesses? What do we do? And thinking mm -hmm. through all that. So you have those fallback positions in a moment of calm. Right. And you said that you don't have that plan until you get punched in the face. And so, for you, how did you develop that mindset to understand that you're going to get punched in the face and you have to find a way to pivot and do so the right way? I think having enough experiences that were very painful, enough times you walk in. That, now, now you're gonna, it's like being in baseball, right? You, you're going to hit some of those out of the park, but you may strike out seven out of ten times. And those, are, those hurt, particularly if it's obvious that you you missed it and they and, and they call you out on the obviousness of it then you're like i mean it, it makes you feel this big you're like oh yeah. my god i am humbled i am really so once you have enough of those you realize that's never happening again i am not allowing that to happen that all those reasons they said no or all those reasons i screwed up or all those reasons i wasn't prepared the combination of that bucket those are never going to happen again if we walk in, man, we're going to have really good chance of hitting it out of the park because we've thought through all the reasons someone would say no, or, or we've deliberately thought about um, where am I weak or where's my organization weak or what, what am I doing that's not optimal or what am I doing that I need to, to ensure that people around me are better than me at and bring them with me, with the team. Like it, it's being aware of my strengths and weaknesses, the organization's strengths and weaknesses and making sure that we're, we're really focused of leaping off from our strengths, but we're not allowing our weaknesses to be fatal, right? Around anything that's going on that we're gonna identify them. I wanna identify it before they identify it. In fact, what I do now is if I know I have three weaknesses or if they have three reasons they hate us or don't wanna buy or don't want the deal or don't wanna sell the company to us, I will point blank saying, I bet you you're thinking these three things. Boop, 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 boop. I will tell them, but I wanna to get to it before they get to it. And I've got a great example. So we had a, um, I was a CEO of a joint venture with ESPN. So it was TNS Sports. So we had NFL, NBA, hockey, Major League Baseball, NASCAR, Formula One, uh, Olympics as our clients, right? And um, and what did TSN, TNS do? We, we were a sports, that part of the company, or that was a research consulting firm. And so we provided data 
And so we had a sports division. So we provided fan data. We provided, um, uh, that was one part of it. So whenever you heard the NFL saying, um, uh, Dallas Cowboys, America's team, or that came from us, or things like um, uh, the uh, God, um, Packers. Everyone loves the Packers. Well, we were the ones that gave Goodell the data. So that they knew that the Packers was the most loved team in the United States, right? So it's that kind of stuff. So um, who was watching, their, their, their uh, metrics, all that. And then we did all the sponsorship stuff, right, for the leagues and for Budweiser's and, uh, you know, all, all the, the companies that were sponsoring. And so um, ESPN initially, um, Roger Goodell put the money in from the NFL many years ago. And so they said, listen, you and ESPN get together. Here's some seed funding. And so I was running the company. So it was in crisis. And uh, we had a big meeting up at ESPN in New York. They have a big office there, which is, even though their main stuff's up in Connecticut, really the, their corporate headquarters stuff isn't really in New York. So we went up there and um, I got thrown into this crisis. Like we weren't making money. It was just not good. So they said, Steve, go run this company, fix it. Okay. I go up there and I walk in and they had all their lawyers there. And, 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 I, go, and I go, oh shit, they were loaded for bear. And so I said, listen, um, I'm the new CEO. Um, I think we, we owe you three years of royalty. Here's a check. Um, here are the things that haven't worked well that if I were you, I'd be mad. We're going to fix this, this. I got to everything before they can shit on me. I told them, I got to every point. And the, the guy, the lawyer goes, dropped his pen, goes, yep, that's honesty. We're, we're staying in business with you. Let's move forward. Let's go. Nailed it. Let's go. That's exactly. He says, otherwise we are prepared to walk away and dissolve the company. Right. It's just because we got to it before he got to it instead. of Cause what it was going to be was a, he said, she said, right. You did this, you did this. You didn't give us this money. The royalty was this. I, you know, it's like, no, I, I copped up and said, listen, we owe you like 500 grand. Here it is. We didn't follow through on these things from this point on, we're going to follow through. And I, I, that's what you do. You get to it before they get to it. Don't allow them to have the upper hand, right, in that situation. So you, you deflate the whole thing very quickly. And that is a, such a powerful tool. Like if I walk into an interview or walk in a situation where I know I'm at a disadvantage, I'm going to cop to it minute one, right? I'm going to say, hey, you know what? I bet you're thinking this isn't going to work, and here's why. Let me tell you why I think it's actually going to work. They're thinking it, right? I know they're thinking it. Their emotions are up. They're, they're loaded for bear because they, they can't wait to tell me how bad this is going to be or this one thing, right? They're like, okay, they can't think rationally until that energy's out. So I'm just going to take that and go, yes, you're right. And they, they look at you like, really? Energy's gone, deflated. There's no fight now. We can move forward. It works every time, right? So that, assuming that's the right thing to do, right? I'm not going to cop to something that, that, that is not true. Mm. Right, but if it's true, why am I going to lie? Like, if, right. if something is true and we screwed up, why am I going to go to you and, and pretend it's not the case? I'm like, no, you're right. We blew it. Yep, and we're going to fix it. Right? I mean, that's it'll be different moving. Forward. So that that part of it can make a huge difference. And that's the the human side of business, the human side of psychology, emotion of, of interaction that can really shift. You know, global organizations that no one really thinks about. That it comes down to that. Two people right. talking, you know, a vibe, an energy, a mood. A, that's, that's a big, a big, big, big thing. And simplifying too. I mean, being able to put those bullets in there and say, these are the things that we screwed up on. 
This is what we yeah. owe you. Making it very simple. And we had talked when I first started about how I can work on presenting to my manager. And then it turned into the interview. And you mentioned the power slide. And it's been one of my most helpful tools to be able to put all of my ideas onto one slide. And in an interview that I had, I passed it out to the people interviewing me. And they were blown away. I had that in a 30, 60, killer, 90. McKinsey Bank of Killer Slide. It just, it works. It had yeah. the mission, the initiative, the goals, the the vision for the next five years and the KPIs. And the division that I was interviewing for didn't have any KPIs. And so we talked about that during the interview. They understood where I was at. And then we were able to move yeah, yeah. past that into actually important things that they probably didn't think that was going to be covered during the interview. And now it's something that I can move forward on and have a relationship with because they know that I'm thinking at that level as well. Yes. It shapes it. It shapes the dialogue very differently, doesn't it? Yes. In ways that you would normally not. Yeah. I've done that with interviews too. I, I think I walked into a, um, um, the CEO of um, McNeil, Jan Jay. So okay. they wanted someone to run all their intelligence function. I, I walk in, it was, it was the funniest thing. His, his office was the size of a small house. It, it, it was stunning. And I walk in, I go, and I heard this voice and I see this person standing there and he was on the ground and this guy was walking on his back and, and giving him a massage. I go, okay, so have a seat. And, uh, and I presented him with, with a, a view of the world, right? While, I said, while he's I, getting a massage. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he finished up and we sat down and he, he had like a living room there. So he sat down in his living room and, and I, I did the killer slide and walked through. Here's what you're thinking, this, this, and this, and the whole thing. And I said, hey, I know you didn't ask for this, but let me, think, let me show you how I'm thinking and how you, you might shape how you're viewing the world and your competitors and this. And it, it just shapes it differently. Right? Now, now you got to be careful, though, because if you're off, like if you have some assumptions that are way off, you can get nailed. Right. So you better be sure that it's, it's pretty, pretty dead on with that. By the way, th th that's a situation where I, I got asked a question that I, I wasn't able to answer. First time that really happened. I mean, I really, I felt embarrassed, but he, first thing out of his mouth, he said, what do I do with Walmart? And I go, what do you mean? I was not ready for that. He goes, Walmart's kill me. He says, I, I, I have to pull all our stuff from Walmart. And they'd Advil and all the products at J&J. &J. He goes, I, I, they're, they're, and he walked through why. He goes, listen, they're dictating prices. And that's when Walmart was in the shift of shifting the power dynamics of retail. Right? Mm -hmm. Initially, it was the, the vendors, the manufacturers saying, here's what it is. Here's what you charge. Walmart was saying, no, no, no. We want this. This is what we want you to look like. Here's a price point we need. And, and it was killing the manufacturers. And this guy goes, I'm not making any money. And, and so he hit me with this first question. First, Hi, how are you? Hey, what do I do with Walmart? I was like, oh, what's going on with Walmart? And it was, it was one of these moments I want to go back and say, if I was to do that again, I think I would have had a better strategic answer for that. Was he still right? on the massage I was table? not ready. Was he still no, on the massage No, no, he, he was up by that point. <laughs> okay, good. No, he was up <laughs> yeah, that threw me off too. I was like, what are you doing on the floor? Oh, I'm just getting a massage. Like, okay, this is a little weird. I mean, walking into that situation, I can imagine that being one of the most unique situations that you have ever walked yeah. into it was uh it was out there so when he's asking you about walmart and how to pivot from that what do you do when you are caught off guard you you mentioned earlier how you have to be upfront and honest do you just 
try and have a conversation about it and what your knowledge is just off the, off the cuff, or is it something that you just kind of have to eat it? Uh, well, now I think I'd react differently. Like, like what, 18 years on, 19 years on, yeah. right? Um, I think I would probably cop to it and go, hey, walk me through what your issue is. And I think I would have interviewed him on what was happening. Um, the worst thing you can do in that situation is pretend you know what to do or pretend you know the nuances of the, that channel relationship, which I, mm-hmm. I, I, I had a sense, but I, I'm, not, I'm not living in it, right? So I think I would have been more, hey, tell me about your profit levels. Tell me about mm-hmm. how much volume you're going through. Um, compare that to Target. Compare that to Acme and Safeways and Kroger's. Walk me through, okay, you know, I, I, I should have done that and then got a strong sense for what options he had. Um, I didn't do that. <laughs> I should have taken back. I go, ah, well, that's a missed opportunity. Right. I mean, the problem is you, here's, here's a problem with that though, is, is I, I probably wasn't as bad as I'm suggesting, but even if you're not making a profit, it still covers fixed costs. And I made that, we made that, no, it wasn't me, but we made a mistake at DHL like that where we pulled a major Toys R Us as a major client. We were losing tons of money on them, millions of dollars. But when, when we fired them, fired them as a client, because we were losing money, suddenly we realized, oh my God, our fixed costs in the Northeast United States, we got hammered. Because we didn't realize, oh my God, they're covering so much of our fixed costs. Even if I wasn't making money on them, mm. the logistics side of some of this and supply chain, you go, oh God. You know, and so I, I, it, it's not as easy as just, there's what I call unintended consequences. I, I call it like, um, there's something about, one of the leadership classes, we, we have a book um, about turnarounds a little bit. And his point he makes is if you want to really understand a business or a company, try to turn it around, try to fix it, right? And so I think of it as a sweater when you get a little snag and you start pulling the sweater and everything unravels, is you have to be really careful where you start unplugging or pulling in a company because suddenly you go, oh my God, I didn't realize all this stuff is connected. And suddenly you're pulling and pulling and pulling and the whole sweater's gone. Like, oh crap, we got a problem. So you got to be very careful about what you unplug because often there's things many levels over that are very consequential that aren't obviously connected that are very connected. And suddenly you've had a catastrophe when you just did something simple over here that 10 levels over here, all the data is connected. And, and that, that realization that everything was connected hit me at TNS 18 years ago. I go, oh my God, everything's, or 17 years ago, everything's connected. And when you realize how all that stuff floats, it, it becomes, um, it changes the way you view companies, right? And, and that's where, I think all that comes together. That's why I think sometimes dipping in very slowly, right? So people that walk into an organization and, oh, I'm going to change everything. Oh, you better be careful. Because even though they may not be operating perfectly, there's probably a very good reason why those things are in place. If you just start unplugging stuff, you're going to break it, right? If you're going to plug something, be very sure you know what the consequences are of pulling that out. That life, it may have been life support for part of it, and you may sink the ship. So I, I prefer to walk in very gently you know, and take low hanging fruit, understand what's going on, get the lay of the land of what the people and vibe is. Be very careful about dipping into changing business lines and products and service lines, because you don't know the consequences until you're there for a couple cycles. You may make a catastrophic mistake a year from now that you didn't even know you made. And you go, oh my God, I can't believe we did that last year. Look what the consequences are, right? So you have to be very careful about understanding the lay of the land from a 
from a strategic standpoint, tactical, operational standpoint, to make sure you're not accidentally hurting things or making it worse, right? And so when people walk in with these grand ideas, it's like, oh, be very careful because you could really spin us off in a really bad way and we're going to miss our trajectory and, you know, bounce off the atmosphere of the earth. And that's, that's not a good thing because you can't get that back, right? So you got to be very, I think that, that's part of the awareness thing we were talking about. Right. And it's, it's that high level understanding that takes an executive, but when you get to the lower level and you said you understand the lay of the land, don't touch too much. How do you know what you need to touch and what kind of things need that fine tuning? And then also what kind of things need to stay in place? What kind of assessments are you going through? Well, you've got two triggers, right? So the only, I think people complicate things and they need to be, but I, I realize that there's too much going on. And so what I would do is I would simplify things. So listen, the only thing I know is we've got revenue things we can do and expense things we can do. Everything falls in one of those two buckets. That's it. There's nothing else going on except us bringing in money and us spending money. Every, so being very careful about understanding what drives the bringing money in and the range of sustainability of that and where your expenses are going is where you start. You have to, you have to deeply understand the nuance of, the business on both of those sides. And then you have to think about, okay, what things are fixed in terms of expenses? What things are, are fluid that I can get rid of that won't hurt the business? How far can I cut this without cutting to the, what we call cutting to the bone and hurting our clients or our revenue? And then you have to get a real sense for what's actually a problem. Remember, I hit you guys hard on that, remember? Mm-hmm. What's the actual problem? Because most companies, I think the number is like 80%, brilliantly solve the wrong problem right and so you want to solve the right problem and so that often takes tremendous time of figuring out what the, the problem may not be strategic it could be people it could be communication it could be your org structure it could be the way we're having meetings it could be your supply chain i don't know yet right and so until i know exactly what amongst that is happening you got to be very careful what where you lay your bets down in getting there. The first thing I go to is I walk in and I've, I've got to understand where the people are, right? So if I walk into a company called, it's got to be, now realize in that situation, everyone wants something from me. Everyone wants their agenda. In times of change, there's also tremendous opportunity. So they're thinking, because when a CEO leaves and a new one comes in, everything that happened Friday is gone and everything is new Monday. Literally, everything that was going on Friday shut down for the most part, every agenda, and you are starting up on Monday fresh to the point that even a car company, sometimes cars that were in production or ready to launch aren't launched anymore. No, done. Right. It's that level. And so you got to walk in and say where I have to understand where people's agendas are. Cause they, they want something from me. Now they're grabbing power. They're looking to consolidate their own power, get more area for themselves. I need to suss out. Is this a really a business need or this guy, man or woman really they're, they're trying to grab power. They're trying to grow their, 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 their fiefdom. Right? I got to get a strong sense of what the truth is in an unvarnished way. And that's the most difficult thing, I think, for an executive CEO to get is what is actually the truth here? Like, what is actually happening that is not filtered through all these people's agendas, all these people's best interests? What is actually going on that I need to fix? And often it's the people part. So I, I always deal with, because if you don't have the right people in place, um, attitudes, vibes, energy, skill sets. Um, orientations, um, outlook, 
Um, they got to have all that. If you have that in place, you're in a good place. And if we're, assuming we're communicating right, any of the right culture, which is often screwed up because if there's someone let go, there's probably pains. So you need to fix the culture. So day one, mm-hmm. you've got to go in, you have to shift that culture to how you want it. You have to live that culture, how we communicate, how we talk, how we're going to engage, how I'm going to respond to you, what you call me, where I go to lunch, right? All, every little nuance of what I do is going to be viewed as shaping the new culture. And then you start looking at the business, right? And get a strong sense of what is actually happening. What I do then is I literally walk through and I say, tell me about your world. I would go to every major department, head of IT, head of HR, um, head of production, head of operations, head of legal, whatever, head of sales, head of marketing. And I'm going to say, show me your world. Help me understand what's going on. And I will triangulate very heavily on what I hear. And I'm going to test it without them knowing against other people that I hear it from, right? So I'm going to test it around um, what the other individuals have told me to make sure I'm getting the truth, right? So as soon as I start hearing something big as a theme, I'm going to gently probe with other individuals to get a sense for, is that reality or someone's opinion, right? And I'm going to get a sense for, is this really a problem? So it's all about mitigating risk, identifying risk, identifying whether or not it's going to hurt us. Can we handle the impact? How long is it going to take us to fix it? Um, and then prioritizing those and walking through that. And then you put a plan in place. And the thing you need to do is enroll the entire um, senior team with you so that you can organize a, uh, so we have a, a shared understanding of what's actually going on, prioritize where we need to head and have them shape a plan that they own and, and drive that forward. That's generally what you do. Not that it's a complete formula like that, but that's generally the strategy. Understood. Yeah, I, I think that's really important because you do have to take a step back. And I think going to each department is incredibly useful as a CEO to be able to understand the full scope. And I think that's what you're hired to do. I know that's what you're hired to do. And that's where you have to well, understand. Well, they're, they're the team, right? I mean, they're, yeah. they're the ones that are running yeah. the company. They're the experts in ways that I am not, right? And uh, um, the challenge that, Elliot, is is getting the truth and understanding what's actually going on and, and figuring out what's, because here's the problem is you never have enough resources. You never have enough money. You never have enough time. You never have enough people to move. Even at DHL, we have 520,000 people. You still don't have enough people to move to do everything you want. So there's always limited resources. And so you need to be able to prioritize of what's really most important for us. And, and you break it into two buckets, right? One is right this second versus long-term. And you need to balance that. And I think most executives, in fact, when I interview executives, I, I always ask them, where are you? Are you in the, the short term, immediate, or are you long term, which is also the operational, tactical versus strategic. And the reality is you need to be in both simultaneously, which is really hard to do, which means I need to optimize right now what's going on now to be amazing in whatever I'm doing or the organization or our profit or whatever the, the endeavor is, while thinking the decisions I'm making now have consequences for the future. And they need to match where we're headed down the line. Because I can make it, for example, if I make a decision now to, to fix our IT, but yet that decision right now that spent three, five million dollars to do whatever makes it harder for me to do something two years from now that's strategic in terms of maybe virtualizing our servers or whatever, I got a big problem, right? Because right. I, I made a decision now that was costly that screwed me two years from now. So you have to go, okay, we need to fix something now, but yet I can't do this for the future. But yet if I make a decision now that, that makes it harder for me to do something in the future, I, I got a real problem. 
right? So it's, you always have to be bouncing between strategic where we headed and then be very practical with how do I operationalize this, right? So that, that bouncing between strategic vision, practical operational is that, that I think that's an art. And that's where the best executives can do that. And the ones who fail are stuck in one or the other. Mm. They're stuck in the vision, but can't do anything tactically operationally right now to be any good, or they're stuck in the operations and then the market shifts, the world changes and they, they can't pivot. Right. But it takes a real right brain, left brain to do that simultaneously while managing the people while, while effectively being a influencer to move people. Cause that's the hard, I think that's the hardest part, right? Cause it's not the speeches. It's not the person getting up on the stage and doing the thing. You have to do that. Right. And then nowadays we've got it on video and you, you video it out to everybody and you have all hands on deck to all hundred thousand people, but that's not what drives it. Right. That's kind of a must have, but, but it, it's the one-on-one -on -one stuff that that's where that, the energy and the culture shifts. And I think more than ever, I'm really sensitive to and grumpy about corporate BS CEO speak, where you know it's just words and there's nothing behind it. People are rolling their eyes and their heads and you know it's BS. And I, I, I really have low tolerance for that. It's like, where's the truth? Let's be honest, where we're headed, lay it out. Here's what's going on. That, that, there's something about the authenticity to that that people are like, okay, he's being real. That, that there's real power in that, that I find moves organizations, right? But then you need to act it, right? That means as I walk through the halls or as I interact with people, that it, it's really an authentic thing that's not a, um, I don't know if you've had this yet, Elliot, but the, the brown bag lunch, oh, the CEO's coming or the executive's coming. They've invited you to lunch. Bring your lunch and we're sitting around the table and he's going to listen to you. Sure he is. Right, where he's really there as a, as a slappy on the back. Oh, you're doing a great job. And he's listening, he's not listening, right? But it's different if you actually did. People feel that, right? They know right away if you're really actually interested in their ideas versus not, um, and how different that is the culture, right? And I, I found that I'm at my most effective and my organizations were best when my job was a facilitator. Like my job was sitting down with someone who was brilliant and just, my only thing was ask questions. Not talking at all. I'm just asking questions. Tell me about this. Particularly if it's something I don't know a lot about, like the IT stuff or deep programming things or deep tax stuff, right? What about this? Tell me about this. Okay, what happens then? Okay, what does that mean? I mean, you're kind of, okay, is there an impact? You, your job is to facilitate them thinking and they, they're the expert. I don't need to be. My only job is to ask them really good questions. I could do that because you're a lawyer. You're brilliant at that. You're the head of IT. You're so good at that. I don't need to be, but my job is to give you context. And so you just keep mm. asking questions. You keep guiding until suddenly the, the answer is right there. And everyone goes, that's the answer. I didn't come up with the answer. I couldn't. But I can guide the conversation so that the answer is just so obvious to everyone in the room. And it always happens. Everyone goes, yeah, that's what we should do. That's where I think great leaders are in that space. They're, they're, they orchestrate, they facilitate, they understand moods, they control the vibe and energy and the, they, they manage the culture. And then they just keep making everyone around them better. Like my job is to pull that out of them and, and move them forward and, and, and bring the high level view of how it might impact everything else and all the data points they don't know and shape that in them. And that's where you find you're at your best when you're really 
facilitating, guiding stuff. Right. And I think the point to be made is having both sides of your brain to understand that long-term strategy and understand how you have to execute on a daily basis. But you're right. I think there are a lot of people that have either one side or the other. I remember reaching out to uh, an executive level employee during the quarantine and telling him about an opportunity that I was seeing during this quarantine because you and I had talked to it. And I think I made the mistake of assuming that he looks at challenges as pure challenges. And it's not a challenge that, like you said, can turn into an opportunity. And I think that really starts with your internal mindset to be able to understand that each person has something to offer and you have to pull it out of them. And that's how you grow is you understand other people's perspectives and continue to grow. Do you have any experiences on how you were able to grow that mindset and to really understand that it's, it's both combined? Um, I, I think the dot-com blow up, uh, 9-11, um, and then the Great Recession, those moments were, they forced that on you. Or, or I find that to get through those, I had to be in both spaces, right? You had to run things through big events that were way out of your control, like way out of your control. And, 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 and that, that shifted that. Um, and realizing that the market was shifting. Now realize too, that, that period of time was a point where, where Friedman, um, the, the famous author, talked about the world is flat, right? So that, that was the first moment when suddenly globalization became real, tech really became real, like it, it is where we are now where suddenly you can do that. Back then you couldn't. Right, because that iPhone smartphone wasn't out to 2007. So until then, it was a theory, and even 2007 to 2012, pieces of it worked, pieces of it didn't. It wasn't until later, and suddenly we're in the middle of something we didn't fully understand. And suddenly, you're like, man, the world is shifting really fast here, and we didn't know where it was going. And then I think combined with the fact that there were moments when I walked into meetings where, um, not that I'm incompetent, but there were moments where I realized, oh, this is painful, or I don't have that answer, or man, I don't want to be pounded on this. So I bring someone with me who was brilliant and I realized, wow, there's something brilliant about that. There's something amazing to me about surrounding myself with amazing people. That it's just very comforting around, this person's brilliant at this, this person's brilliant at this, this person's brilliant at this in ways I am not. And my job then is to do nothing but orchestrate their brilliance and shape that and throw them softballs to kill whatever's going on here. I found power in that. I go, man. That is the thing. If I can find people that are just stunningly good, and my only job is to tee things up for them because I realize they can't do that, but I know how to put it in context in ways they can't. And so my only job was, hey, Bob, you tell me about this. Tell me about how that works. I would keep shaping their agendas, and things were smooth. And I was covered on the stuff I wasn't an expert in. Right, and I think that's the key thing. Because any chief exec is not an expert in all the space. There's no way you could possibly be, right? Given the range of what you have to do, and so that suddenly you realize, wow, there's something in that advocacy, coaching, servant leadership piece that is just powerful, from a love, compassion, human standpoint. But then from an organization standpoint, you realize you took this person's genius. And you did something in that you made a context where it was better, 
right? And there's something about that that is just like, man, that is fun. But it moved things forward. Like you were able to move the organization forward because you just kept teeing these things up. My job was to hold the context, understand where all the, the thousands of dots were nailed, understand what was the biggest priority, make sure they addressed that, saw the holes in the conversation they had, and say, hey, you missed this. What about this, Bob? Because they'd always miss something. But me as an outsider watching them talk, I'd find the spaces they missed and I would watch where we needed to go. And I'd say, what about this? I think Barb's interested in this, Bob. What about that? And you just keep pushing that forward. And suddenly mm. you've got a genuine, authentic team. And then they know I've got their back, right? They know I'm there for them. And I, I didn't need the limelight. I didn't need to be the man. My being the man was being the orchestra conductor of making sure the meeting went well, right? That that, even if I said one word, that was the power in that. I think that's where that evolved. When you realize if you can focus the team genuinely, authentically in a way where they are at their best, then things change. I think that's where the whole, where it evolved for me a little bit. And some of that's just self-defense. Like, why would I go to a meeting if I'm not a tax expert? Mm. I know enough to yep. get myself in trouble. I better have my tax attorney with us. Or if I'm deep in the weeds with something deep way into IT, I know enough to know what's going on. But if you start talking about deep stuff, he better be with me. So it's just some of it's self-defense. Some of it's also like being opportunistic around we can move this forward. Mm -hmm. And I'm better, we're better together. So I always seek that better together thing. Like, can I find people around me, the, the Steve Jobs, Wozniak thing, right? The, the, the Bill Gates, and he had his guy, uh, Paul Allen or whatever, right? You, you realize, wow, there's, uh, it's the, the John Lennon, McCartney thing, right? You got to find people that you complement each other. So I surround myself with people that are complementary to my skill sets and vice versa, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's the most important thing. And I try to surround myself with people who are going to be honest with me. Right. So the last thing you need is cult of personality. And that can spin out of control very quickly. Where you get yes men or yes women around you. Oh, yeah, Steve, you're brilliant. I, I don't need that. Because what if I'm not? <laughs> what if I missed something? What if I, I, I interpreted something through a different lens? What if I, I completely blew an understanding? What if I have an agenda that I didn't realize I had? I need someone to call me on that. Say, Steve, I think you've got an agenda here that is not, yeah, you're right. Or what if I get in that warrior mode? Right? And I said, Steve, do you want to die in this hill? I do that to my friend Kevin all the time. I was like, dude, do you want to die in this hill? No, I don't. You know, but you're all feisty. You're ready to go to war. I said, mm, maybe it's not the time. Let's live the fight another day. Right? So you, you need that around you. And, and, and I think the problem is where I see companies get in trouble is that gap between CEO as cult of personality and the people reporting to him or her thinking that there can be no dissent allowed. And then all you get is yes men. And the CEO never gets the truth and you get crazy cultish leaders and you get bad companies, and bad cultures. It's not good. So anytime you have a major problem in a company, whether it's Ford having the unintended acceleration with the key thing or knocking it off, I mean, Merck had some problems and you can go on and on, right? It's because people were scared. I mean, in my organization, I want no one ever scared coming up to me telling me the truth. Why would I pound you if you're telling me the truth? frankly, you probably didn't screw up. Even if we did, we can fix it. But it's far worse not to know the truth. I mean, in some companies, people die, right? If you're in a drug company, if something goes wrong, people have died. In car companies, 
if you don't, people have gotten hurt. I mean, that wouldn't happen in my industry, but still, why would you allow that? Why would you go down that path where someone has fear to come to you and not tell you the truth? And the minute, the minute they get skewered for that, you wreck the culture. In fact, the response should be quite the opposite. Awesome. Thank you for bringing that. How do we fix it? What do you, what do you recommend? You're close to it. What's the solution here? Walk me through that. Right? That has to be the approach because otherwise people are like, oh my God, I'm not going to Auckland again because I'm going to get pounded. And, and then suddenly no one's telling you the truth. And you get all the stuff in 60, that's where all the stuff in 60 minutes comes from. Theranos, right? It all comes to uh, Enron, Worldcom. It all comes from that, right? Is people are scared of the CEO. It's stuff in Amazon. As, as much as Bezos feels like he's saying the same thing, there's something wrong there. Because you wouldn't have these problems. Something between, he may be saying the right thing, but his direct reports between them and their, their next layer, something's wrong. Because you wouldn't have all this crap going on. It wouldn't be tolerated culturally, right? People know, if you do this, the CEO's gonna be pissed. Apparently, people are okay with it because apparently the message is not getting down. That rests on the CEO, if you ask me. Not shaping the mood culture the way you need to shape it, right? And part of that though is the KPIs. You mentioned KPIs, mm -hmm. right? So if you have, I was very sensitive to unrealistic KPIs, unrealistic timelines, unrealistic deliverables that would, you stress organizations so much that they get what we call crispy and you burn them out and it becomes bad. So the first thing I do every morning is walk in and talk to my head of HR and I'd go, how are we? And what I meant was, are we crispy? Are we going too far? Are people staying too late? Do I need to back off? Because often the only person that would be able to pull back on that was me of say, you know what? We can slide in that deadline here, right? Um, and so being very aware of how far you can push an organization, particularly in time of crisis, like I've, most of the companies I was in was at turnarounds. And so you're on edge, man. You're exhausted. People are working late, midnight, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, seven days a week, sometimes 20 hours a day. And at some point you have to pull back and be very sensitive to, can I push? Can I pull back and figure out how do we move this? And that, that takes some real awareness of, when I can push and when you need to throttle back to, to, to let things breathe a little bit, you know, and that, that, that comes, you can't just keep pushing all the time. It just doesn't work. It's like an athlete, right? Right. Sometimes you need rest. So here's your softball. What has Muay Thai done for you and what has cycling done for you to get in that mindset? Oh, great question. Um, well, I love both, right? So Muay Thai and Kempo Karate, I have my black belts in both and then a screamer. Um, it took like 10 years um, as an adult and then um, cycling. I mean, certainly the, um, I go back to both of those every day. Like literally, uh, I think we've talked about this. Like when I'm in a crisis mode or exhausted, the only thing I can relate it to is the, the cycling thing. With, for example, if you're in a, a race that's hundred miles or something, or you're, you're a hundred mile trip and um it, it, your mind explodes. You can't, you can't handle that. It's too much. It's, it's emotionally overwhelming, which sounds ridiculous for an athlete to say that. Right. But it's like, it, it's defeating. It's exhausting intellectually and spiritually. Like, Oh my God, I can't do that. Right. And when you're in the middle of it, particularly if you're really suffering, like, I mean, talking, you're, you're really on the limit. You're at VO2 max, you're at red line, you're, you're what they call full gas. And you literally, every cell in your body is screaming. You can't get oxygen. And you just are like, Oh my God, I think I'm going to die. And then you're hoping you're going to die, right? Um, I just think of the next pedal stroke. 
because it's destructive to think of half a mile ahead or a mile ahead or another hour, two hours, three hours, or the next mountain you need to climb. It's impossible. So the only thing I think about is just keep pedaling, just the next stroke. And so that, that I think discipline of taking what the road gives you, like I, you can't race up a hill. Fine. I can go 37 miles an hour, 38 on a flat, but the hill comes, gravity's going to get you ease into it, find a pace you can sustain. Like all those little lessons of how you navigate your intellect and your emotion and your spirituality to sustain that and, 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 and handle the pain. And, and even the Muay Thai stuff with the training and, and um, you get hit. And we would spar and there's some guys in there are semi-pro and trust me, you get nailed. I've been nailed and the, working through the fear, it's scary. And I'm a big dude and I'm really strong. And you get nailed and it, you're like, uh-oh. And then you realize when you throw a punch, there's vulnerability because you're open now to get hit, right? That's the moment when you're being aggressive, when that guy has an opening to punch you in the face or that you're going to get or kicked in the head. And you start balancing that fear and you start getting good at seeking that out of not being scared of the fear, not being scared of something difficult of finding things hard on purpose and you start craving that hardness, craving the suffering, craving and being at peace with the suffering in a way that other things don't give you. There's something about overcoming self and your fears and your exhaustion and the pain that is just so human that there's something about that self battle of working through that, that I find so spiritual. Like you're never more human than in that moment. There's, you're never more connected to who you are as a human, to who you are connected to God, to spirituality, to the universe, to your cells, to your breathing, to your thinking, to all that stuff is congealed into, man, I can't believe we're doing this and just keep going. And there's something about that that is just, it, it, it's overcoming. You know, and it's, it's a sense of this is hard and I'm going to do it anyway. And this is painful and I'm going to do it anyway. And this is, and there's something about flying, there's something about the speed and there's something about the spinning and kicking. And there's something about all that stuff that is just, it's hard and it hurts. And there's something in that that builds character and builds perspective, right? And something about that also calms you down, right? So for me, it, it, it's magical. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the the eight, was it eight hours to finish the training of Muay Thai, one of the last conversations we had, and that just well, it was it was four days, four days of eight hours. It, it, it was our fine, it was our black belt test, and um, we'd done it for like nine or ten years at that point, and um, we had a very chill dojo, and it was just awesome. The guy was awesome, and we, we blended different types of martial arts. And it was when the black belt test came, it was like, oh, listen, we got four weekends here, seven, eight hours a day. And then you have a, a, an event at the back end of this. So that's a fifth thing. And we were physically, they kicked our ass because you're training just the way you see on MMA fights, right? All that stuff's exactly what we're doing. So we were physically tired, but we were, we were up to it because we've been doing that for years. So we, we, we understood that, that three minute ring thing go, but for eight hours, what got us was emotionally. And intellectually, we were, we were exhausted. Like the intellectual part of just 
punch, 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 go, 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 crunch, 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 hit for, you know, the combinations. Okay, here's a move. Do it. This is going on. Okay, the guy comes after like this. Okay, defend yourself. Okay, go back. And it never stopped. And at one point, you're like exhausted, like just spiritually exhausted too. Like, I cannot believe how wiped out intellectually I was. You could, we couldn't function anymore. And I remember, I think I told you there are two things he did there where we do these um, katas that are, at the time, I thought they're kind of hokey. Now being away from it by what, six or seven or eight, eight or nine years now, it's like a dance routine. But what it is, is all your moves um, pretending you're fighting somebody. Right. So now I go, oh, I see the value of that. But we always did it facing one way. And this lesson for me has stuck. And it was always facing the mirror, glass behind us, glass over here. And they were choreographed moves that might take seven or eight or 10 minutes. He goes, okay, everyone turn to your left, start that way. What? We, none of us could do it. Because we were so trained doing it. And then he goes, okay, back, eyes to the front again, close your eyes. Do the entire thing, eyes closed. And you need to get back to your exact starting point within half a foot facing the right direction after a seven minute or eight minute routine, punching and kicking and moving around and everything's at angles, right? So you're doing all this. Oh my God. I mean, so that for me was profound from a standpoint of, man, if you change your perspective a little bit, how different is the world? How different is the world? The fact I'm in the same room, same direction, my eyes closed and suddenly everything, my experience with that changed completely, right? That, that to me was profound, right? In fact, it's very similar to my dissertation stuff, actually, because in my, my dissertation stuff, I was walking in to defend my dissertation after nine years of, of graduate work, my PhD, and the woman goes, the uh, Barb, Dr. Barb um, Hawkins goes, you know these um, slides you have? I don't want to use any slides. I was like, what? She says, Whoa. Just... now realize I spent nine years doing this, right? So like, no. wait, you spent nine years in graduate school? Was it, yeah. So this is so I'm, like eight and a half, nine years. Yeah. So this is, I'm at the very end after like four years doing research on my PhD dissertation. And, and, and I was walking in to defend the final defense. Okay. Where you walk in and present to, to the, the final professors and they're like, yes or no, you're invited to be a doctor, you're not invited to be a doctor kind of thing, after you pass your qualifying exams, all that kind of stuff. And so she goes, I want you to use slides or PowerPoints. And I was stunned. I was like, you, and I'm walking in the room. She goes, no, do it off the top of your head. Tell us a story. Now, it was a three-hour presentation. I had slides. And so it was the most profound, beautiful moment I've ever had. Because she was right. I had it fucking nailed. I, I said, okay, here's the five things I learned. Set, boom, 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 boom. I went into great detail with extreme precision. And she's like, that's the best I have ever seen in 40 years. It, it, it was just because I, I would, but it was that shift of, oh my, it, it forced me so out of my comfort zone that my whole world, the access to my world went like this, shifted right then. I go, that is something. Bill, you sit back and explain science in a excruciating detail at the top of your head with precision and focus was just beautiful, right? So that, that was, and that, that's very analogous to the, the, the stuff in the Muay Thai and the, the Kempo Karate. Like you have to have those things where you're out of your comfort zone. Like growth only comes out of your comfort zone. It never... Maybe that's part of it too, is I'm bored. 
I need to be out of my comfort zone all the time. And those moments where everything's like pushing out a little bit, you know, or like I, I raced with a, a, a real race team. And these guys were ex Olympic champions. For cycling, right? Yeah. Uh, in cycling. Yeah. Yes. And I was really intimidated. So these guys were literally ex Olympians, world champions, national champions. These were, now they're older, but they were serious. I mean, the best team in the world in their space. And they go, yeah, why don't you come out? I was intimidated, but I hung with them. But just being with them, you go, my axis shifted. Cause it's like, oh, this is how it feels. This is what it feels like to be in a Peloton with guys who are world champions and what it means to hold the line and what it means to go for eight hours and hundred miles in December when it's 25 degrees in King of Prussia or Valley Forge out here, right? I mean, I go, oh, the axis you rolled shifts I was way out of my comfort zone, right? And there's something about being out of your comfort zone that forces you to show up, forces you to fight through it, that I, I find you crave that. Then at some point you start doing this, that looks hard, let's do that, <laughs> right? What's out there that's really hard? Let's try that just because it's fun and I can't be normal now because normal is boring. It's like, no, that's not fun. Give me something really hard that's impossible, that looks really difficult. I want to do that. Right? So I think that shapes you a little bit. And then there's no fear. It doesn't mean I don't, I don't fail. It doesn't mean that I don't screw something up. Or, but there's something about that push that to me is just amazing. I don't know. I agree. And I did something similar during this quarantine where I found a group of lacrosse players through a professional lacrosse player in the area who plays for the water dogs and um, very great name. Uh, And so great name. name. And so they, he invited me out to join a six on six pickup team game that goes on on a dirt field right outside of Atlanta with some of the top players in Atlanta. And I thought at the end of my lacrosse career, when I broke my foot, that my career was done. I'm just done with lacrosse. That's it. Yeah, I mean, obviously awesome. you play D3 and that's, that's really what my mindset was. And I lived within those constraints. And it was only until I went out with these players that I understood, oh, this is truly what it takes to play at this level. And I can hang with it. And that's okay if I'm not doing it perfectly, but at least I earn their respect. I throw, yeah. I throw some chirps yeah. out, get the defense going, get the attack yeah. riled up. It's like you're doing the same things, and if you make a couple saves, you let in a couple goals, you say some things that are off the cuff, make some people yeah. laugh. One, you're part of that group, and two, internally it validates that, oh, I've always felt like I could play at this level, and now I know I can. Yeah, and it doesn't mean you're the best. It doesn't mean that you're going to win all the time. Right. There's something about Okay, I'm not the worst, right? So my goal is always in racing, just don't be last. As long as I wasn't last, <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm good, man. <laughs> as long as I'm not last, not kicking me out, <laughs> it's been a good day. Exactly. Right? And it's just more so to the point of you have to have that internal validation to understand that you can go to that level and that, yeah. that only then you can lead because you have – those internal battles all the time. You're the only person that's living with yourself all the time. And so once you're able to conquer that, that's where you get the true buy-in from others to understand, okay, this is somebody that has a vision and understands yeah. where, we could, where we could and should be going. 
Yeah, it's funny. The first time I rode with a, like a pro guy, like a real racer, I was stunned because this is going to sound stupid. So I, I will admit, it, I, I feel like an idiot saying it, but I, I go, he never stopped pedaling. I mean, my first thought was, really? Oh my God. Oh my God. I can't believe he never stopped. And, and, and the pace never stopped the whole time. So my body never experienced that, right? You, you, you know, I was fast and I was good, but it's like, oh my God, this is something different. And so once, once you experience that around you, you go, this is, oh, that's what this is like. I never knew, right? I, I never thought of that. I never thought of that it'd be like that. And so suddenly everything shifts. Your paradigm shifts like, oh, it's like you're lacrosse. Like, this is what it's like, okay. You know, so you have to have those moments that are way out of your comfort zone to go, oh, this is the real, this is what it's like. This is the real world, right? I think that is so cool to have those moments that are just ingrained. You know, you go right to them. You've had them. You, they're like stuck. Like they're happening right now. You know exactly those moments that suddenly you go, oh, that realization of something different, you know? And that's really cool. You knew you, you changed. Like right at that second, you were someone different before and you're someone different now. That moment changed you and you'll never see the world the same. I, I love that. Like, wow, that is profound. Yeah. So. And, and it's something that in that moment I definitely felt, but it, it started with, like I said, that book to the mind gym to understand what my successes were and my failures were. Yeah. Yeah. I used to get in my head so much before hockey games that I would throw up so that I would get rid of the nerves. And then I'd, essentially black out during the games i was yeah Yeah. i was goalie in hockey as well and that was more nerve-wracking than any other lacrosse game i've ever played in just because one of my passion and two now that i've been older i understand or now that i am older rather i understand that being enclosed in that space is from at my at that time and that mindset was very intimidating and once i was in high school and had the fans around that was something that I needed to black out because I didn't want to see anything else except for the puck. And that was my way of doing it. But now I understand from reading that book, understanding the successes and the failures that there is a process to this that you need to go through to understand yourself so that then you can in turn lead. Yeah. It's funny. I I need to read that book, by the way, you've mentioned that before. The one thing I find interesting with, with, um, in the leadership class I teach, that I taught an MBA like a number of years, and then I taught at their sinus, is I think the students get stuck on what they're not good at, right? And often those are things that we can't fix, or you can expend, like the return on investment of that is so off kilter that it doesn't make you better, that often the, the launching point is, what are you really good at? What's your strength? There's something everyone's brilliant at, that's gotta be the place that you lead from, grow from, and you need to find a way to minimize the damage that your weaknesses may make. Cause we can't fully, I'm never gonna dunk a basketball, right? It's a weakness of mine, right? So me working on that doesn't make it better, right? I, you know, I'm never gonna be an ice skater the way, or a hockey skater the way you are. So me working on that is probably not gonna improve it in the way to get to your level. So w- what am I gifted at? And I need to launch from that. Now, if your weaknesses hit hurt your ability to optimize your strengths, then you got a real problem, mm. right? Like if you can't communicate, yet you're trying to lead something, you, you got a major issue there. But generally spending time on what you are really good at and using that as a launching point 
is the way from a Gestalt perspective and a leadership perspective and influence that we influence others and move things and change things, right? As long as we're aware of our weaknesses and either find a way to work around, bring people with us like I do, I, I know what I'm not good at. I'm painfully aware of the things mm -hmm. I think I'm, I'm suboptimal at. So I surround myself, like we talked with people that are good at those things on purpose, or I steer away from that in a way that, well, I'm going over here, right? Um, and I think that's the thing where people can get stuck in this, I'm horrible, I'm horrible, I'm horrible. And I think with age, I think my friends in the 50s are like this too, where we're, we're, we're okay with that. Like I'm okay with the stuff I'm bad at. Like there's a whole list of stuff that I go, I'm not good at this, I'm okay with that. I'm good at this, so I can do this. Right, so you suddenly become comfortable with, in your skin, who you are, your place in the world. And I don't worry about the things that I'm not gifted at. It's like, so be it, I'm not good at that. Okay, so what? I'm good at this. And I think that's, it seems to be a more um, centered, Zenish kind of view of the world. Mm -hmm. right? We all have different gifts, we all have different skill sets, good and bad, and so I, I think that focus on well, what, how am I going to change the world relative to my gifts? You have, you have to launch from your gifts, right? So I, I, I feel people's pain when they get stuck in, I'm not good at this, I'm not good at this, I'm not good at this. Okay, well, what are you good at? Like, what are you bringing at in ways that I'm not? I'm sure there's something that someone is, like you are. There's things you're better than me on, on certain things. Use those things, right? That's the point how you're going to touch others and change others and change their worlds is, launching from that from that point so it gives me pain when i hear people say oh, i'm horrible and people beat themselves up particularly students right 18 19 20 man they really beat themselves up oh, i'm horrible with this i'm horrible with this at some point like hey i get it got it but what are you great at and no one goes there like they cannot and it's it's really painful to get them thinking about you're really good at and usually i can pick it out i go did you know i think you're good at this really yeah no this is your gift you're better than me at this you're good that's your gift launch from there stop beating yourself up about this other stuff like i'm so bad no 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 this you're really great at whatever that is you're great with connecting people you're you're, you're trustworthy whatever that's where you need to go and that, that shifts people a little bit well i think it's also because at that age, it's your first time being on your own. You're being yeah. told by coaches, teachers, that this is what you need to do. And then shifting from that is rather difficult. And you were the person that told me and caught me very off guard that I was going to be running a company one day. And I had never heard that before from anybody. And I remember like you said, you remember that moment. I remember that yep. moment. And it was something that I never saw within myself. And it was that moment that my mind, sh my mindset shifted forever. I, I can't see another way because now all I want to do is create something large or many things that are large yep. and, and, and even small and just, just creating things that are fulfilling and then just seeing how it grows. You started me with that. And it is very hard when you're coming from high school and being parented to then go into college and see who you truly are. And that's what it is. It's becoming an adolescent to an adult. And that's part yeah. of the growth process. Yeah. So for you, it's like finding your gifts, like finding the thing that you are uniquely gifted at, the, 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 your 
what is your God-given or universe-given gift that you that no one else has, the way, way you express something. That, finding that and, and understanding that, right? And this, that's not ego. That's not arrogance. That's just a self-understanding of what you're good and bad at, self-understanding of what your gifts are, and be able to optimize those in a way that you can shape the world around you, right? And that, that takes some pretty big reflection on both ends. Right. And I'm not saying ignore the things you're not good at, but I'm saying be hyper aware of that because you don't want them to hurt you or slow you down. But man, you got to find a way for those, those unique gifts. And I think this, this podcast for you is the opportunity to start poking at that, right? To get a sense for comfortable in your own skin of, okay, what, I'm Elliot. What, 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 what is my unique place in the world? And then that's where you lead from. Right? So this time for you, I think, is so cool because if you're aware of it, which I think you're, you're, you are, is aware of self in a way that self is a tool to influence and move others. And that is profound. That's a profound gift. If you can remain in that moment, particularly through your 20s when you're, you're going to evolve and change, when you start experiencing things at work and at podcasts and other things grow, it's like, how have I changed? Like, how am I changing? What am I becoming? Like, I, I love that notion of becoming, the, the verb part of that, right? The sense of how I'm evolving. How, where, where am I headed? What does that trajectory look like? There's something that is profound about being aware of the self-evolution of your perspective, your point of view, where you're headed, how you're touching others, and even you being aware of how you might be. I, I think that's where the podcast is coming from a little bit, is you being aware of how you might be moving others touching others, influencing others, right? That, that in itself, Elliot, to me, they go, that's something, you know, if you take a Zen view of that, you go, that's, that's a gift. Like if you be aware of that you're in that moment, and that's something cool, right? At the beginning of the quarantine, I have one word written on the top of the sheet after the phone call that we had together, and it's the word flush. You said there's going to be a flush of everything that we know right now. And yeah, yeah, yeah. He could not be more dead on. And I think from that, I saw an opportunity to execute on something that I knew I had control on. I knew that I could record myself and record the conversations I'm having and, yeah, yeah, and yep. just see where it goes. I have a vision for it, but. I know that, like you said, it's not ever as you planned. You just have to ride the wave and you have to pivot along the way. And there have been difficult times of this podcast. There have been interviews that have not gone the way that I wanted. There have been times where I've been insecure to post and to get it published. And I'm happy right. to say right. that I finally have because I have surrounded myself with people that are like, you have to understand at some point, this isn't about you. This is about telling other people's stories, about telling other people's vulnerabilities, and you're the vessel. You're the person that's able to do that. Yeah, you and I talked about curiosity, right? There's something profound in your ability, someone's ability to be curious about other, right? So, so your ability to do this and to always be in that curious mode about the other and facilitate their life, facilitate their, their journey. What, what's shocking to me through CIE, um, talking to freshmen, through my leadership course in graduate school, when I talk to CEOs, when I do interviews with them, is that when, when I hear their stories and when they're vulnerable, 
I'm always changed. Like I never, I never leave those moments unchanged. Like there's always something, even from an 18 year old, I go, wow, that's, I'm different because of what you told me. And that is a gift. Like, because I, I'm open to that. Like I'm open to learning something in a way I did or seeing something I didn't see that way before. And there's something, there's a beauty in that, that I find. So, so you being in a mode of being very curious about others, if you stay in that place, it's, it's profound, right? And then if you reflect on how can I be better around helping the other tell their story, like the vessel thing, right? Mm-hmm. How do I be a facilitator of what's important to them in their life's journey? How do I be highly curious about why they are the way they are, what drives them? Like, if you're in, authentically in that place, people will open up. People will, gosh, and you'll get stuff out of them that is just life-changing to them, to you, and to your listeners. And that's the beauty of it, is how can you be in that place where you are so interested in, in them that it, it just makes it so easy for them to be vulnerable and real and authentic and tell you things that they're not telling other people. You know, yeah. that's, that's a cool thing. Yeah, and I think it starts with one, allowing them to tell their story. And then as the conversation continues, they start asking about you. And then you're able to connect on a level that you rarely connected prior to that conversation. And I felt like through this whole quarantine, I was having those kind of conversations and wasn't recording them. And I was like, you know what? If we're going to get to this level, then let's just start something around it. And That's good. And it was something yeah, that good. just kind of came from within that it was like, I'm doing this already. Let, let's keep this rolling and, and see where it goes. Yeah, you and I talked about the, um, I, I call them inflection points. Like the moment that people have, and everyone has it, pain, drastic change, something intense. Like those moments that change people's life, change the trajectory of someone's journey getting to those moments are really profound because I, I always learn something from their lived experience around wh- what they went through. Right. I mean, there, there, there's life lessons and we all share this human journey and some of this stuff and most of this stuff, although we, we, we rarely cross the threshold that space between to talk about it. But man, if mm-hmm. you can, there's something about how we are all connected in that and how I can be different and learn and change through your lived experience that to me is a very, it's a very Tuesday with Maury-esque, you know, that kind I of don't. thing, right? Right? What is it? It's Tuesday with Maury. You ever, so. Um, no, I guess I'm. Ooh. Oh, you got to read that book. There's a, there, um, God, uh, Mitch Album. He's a sports okay. rapper. And he had a friend who was older and dying. And so in Detroit, and every Tuesday, he would spend Tuesday with them. And it turned into a very, a very profound book as this man was dying around the conversations he's having with Maury um, uh, about life. And Mitch was changed. This, this sportscaster lived a big life and he's a journalist and, and really well known, wrote a bunch of books. And it's, it's a profound thing. And, and so that, that sense of crossing that threshold of, of, of he, he let himself be vulnerable and had these deep life conversations with a, a much older man, a Jewish man who was dying and um, learned about life. And his life changed because of that. It's just something about that that is just like, huh, that is, who's Maury for me, right? Who's the guy that I can learn from? Who's, who's the, the, the Yoda out there that can change me? Like what, that's, 
you, you gotta you, you look you look for that that kind of thing a little bit and it's about the journey right it's about yeah. understanding the journey of how we all we all I mean that that joke it's not the destination it's the journey right but it really is mm-hmm. it's like it's never been the, the 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 output that's been interesting it's always been the struggle for the journey that has always been the place that shapes you and changes you and so living that understanding someone else's journey their pain and their joys and the, the struggles and mm. oh, man there is something in that that is just so profoundly connecting us as, a, as humans particularly in a world that is very western and very american and very isolated and very freedom and very liberty and we're all separated live on our own we're islands we're standing on ourselves no we're not we're all the same experiences yet we're afraid to to to, to link with that is I don't know. There's something profound in that that I find important. So when I get connected to people, it's around those painful lived inflection points that are just, man, that was something, wasn't it? Yeah. How do you feel about that? That, that just changes you. And it, and it connects us in a way that other things don't, you know? In some ways, you're my Mori, where you've gone through a lot of experiences and recently with your battle with ms that's something that i haven't ever experienced where you're faced with something that's permanent and you still have a very similar if not the same mindset as you did before to attacking every day to understanding what is important and what's not important and you're teaching me those lessons and we've had so many conversations around so many different topics but your mindset doesn't change. You still are motivational. You're still inspired to learn. And I think that's life. That is life. Yeah. It's about the fight, right? It, it's about the struggle. It's about the, no, don't get me wrong. There's lots of moments and days and you and I've talked about this where what has shocked me with the MS thing, particularly if you have a, a long-term disabling progressive disease that, that never goes away. And, and there's hundreds of moments a day and you and i've talked about this where legitimately like oh oh shit this is something right or you, know, you look up at god and go really dude you know and, and you have to but what i found through that is the the discipline the fight to understand the emotion that comes with you know, something physical happens something emotional then comes within a second slams against you and you can get swept away with that and so i've gotten very good maybe just because you have to be out of of, of taking that and going, yep, okay, emotion, I throw that away. I, I got, I got to move. I can't be paralyzed. I got to work. I got to do that. whatever it is, and and find a way to move forward instantly. Like you have to live very presently, and very deliberately, and that takes. And I think the cycling, the 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 Muay Thai and and the Kempo Karate, all that stuff, the PhD dis- discipline of, of not you know the years there, all that, I'm well equipped for the most part, for, for, to, to have that fight, right? It doesn't mean there's days and moments that I'm not frustrated. It doesn't mean there's days and moments where I'm not really irritated or, or particularly in the beginning, I think I was more confused and shocked and stunned and, and not quite sure things are going and, and not sure how it's going to affect me. And, um, but that, that I realized, okay, I'm, I'm pretty well, if anyone's equipped, I'm pretty well equipped. Yep. And even physically, I mean, I, I'm, you know, for someone my age, I'm really well equipped. Like it came into this, in better shape than most 22 year olds. I mean, I was really in awesome shape. And so 
I had a good baseline. Now it slid a little, clearly for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I I think I have the mentality. But there's days where it's a fight. I mean, it, it's a, and I think maybe that's a lesson, man. I mean, that the lesson about listen, life is a struggle. Life is a fight. Nothing's perfect. Things are going to go wrong. We're going to have difficult moments for us and our families and our kids. And uh, things go okay. You, you got to keep going, right? And you ca- got to keep pedaling. Remember we talked about that. I got to keep the, the pedal moving, and that's all I do is I, I got to keep moving, right? And that discipline, I think, serves me well. It doesn't mean there's moments where I'm not pissed and I'm not hurt and I'm not angry and I'm not um, in disbelief, maybe more than anything else. Like I haven't railed at God yet, which is shocking, right? <laughs> you think at one point you go, oh, I haven't done that. <laughs> You know, but, but yet I've had those moments where, where I'm like, I can't believe this is happening. And then you have to snap yourself out of it because that spins you down a bad path. It doesn't serve you to live in that place, right? But I have shifted priorities. Like I've shifted what I think is important back to the four questions, right? How should we live? What's important? I mean, there's been a shift over where should I spend my time? What's my purpose here? And maybe the, the stark contrast to the theoretical questions versus the MS makes me, um, forces me to think about, wait, those are real for me now. <laughs> Why am I here? What's the purpose of life? What's the meaning of life? I, those are, I'm living that and I'm struggling in front of the find answers because I'm in the middle of that crisis. So I'm really searching, like I'm really curious around, well, so what is this about? Why am I here? What's the meaning of this? What should I be doing? I've achieved all this stuff. Should I just throw it away? Should I do, what do I do now? What do I do next? What do I do now given what I have with MS? What do I do? Okay, so all that stuff suddenly becomes big questions that I don't have answers for, yet I'm aware they're the right questions. I'm a little peeved that I, I don't feel competent or abil- have the ability to have articulate answers on that yet, but I keep chipping away at it, right? And sometimes slowing down and just saying, Okay, maybe I, I keep hoping, very Zen-ish, I'm trying to be, that the answer will come to me. Like I keep thinking, if I just calm down and focus, that it'll find me. It's like the, the notion of you can't, you can't chase your shadow, you can never catch it, right? And if, whenever you chase an answer, it, it, it always runs. So if I just sit, I need to sit in this, very good thought, right? Sit in it and it'll find me. So that's what I'm trying to have the discipline to do. So at least I can make sense of what's really important? Like all the stuff I thought was important, I'm not sure was. Like that running companies and the money and the cars and the house, all that kind of crap. I go, yeah, I'm not sure my life is any better. <laughs> right? And the sacrifice to get some of that is you can't explain to somebody. It, it, it's profound in ways that are crushing in some ways, right? What, what you have to give up and what you have to do. Do I want to do that? Or is there something else that is... What am I meant to do now? Like, like right. you were asking that question. Like, this came to you. Like, this is your purpose. Like, I'm in that same boat of, okay, given this, given where I've been and what I've done and who I am and what I know and what I'm good at and bad at and where I'm asked, what do I do now? Like, that is heavy on me right now. And that gets to the four questions, and I don't have an answer, right? But I do know if I keep pushing at it too much, it's going to freak me out, or I'm not, it's going to frustrate me. So, therefore, I'm trying to be calm focused centered but curious over hearing a whisper like i'm aware of something will come across 
right? Maybe you're part of it. Maybe someone I run into here, right? It's people that weave in and out of your life that change the trajectory. You see things differently and suddenly you go, that little whisper that you've had to, you go, wait, is that something I need to listen to? And suddenly it gets louder and suddenly it's like, I think you have the instinct. Like I'm in that mode right now of just being, try, trying, trying to be patient around, what is that? What is that thing? What is my purpose? How do I change the world? What does it look like? I don't know. Right. But I need to be okay with that. And you've changed a lot of companies. You've changed a lot of other people's mindsets. But you're somebody that's not comfortable with sitting still, and neither am I. I was very uncomfortable when I was forced yeah. to sit with my own thoughts. And it's something that there were good days, there were bad days, but you follow that yeah. voice to be able to continue to learn, to continue to be curious. Because similar to me, you're somebody that is always studying, always continuing to improve. And that started at a young age. The last conversation we had, you talked about how you had read every car magazine since 1978. Yes. I don't know anybody else that's done that. And you have to know so much about cars and from the oh, conversation yeah, 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 we had. It wasn't an exaggeration. That's insane. Car driver, road and track, motor trend, and then when automobile magazine came in, every single month, the entire well until recently. Now, of course, they're most of them are published. Right, right. Last year, but yeah. to be able to have that discipline and drive to understand, oh, I I want to learn as much as I can about. No, this. that's a disease. <laughs> <laughs> it's curious four wheel Porsche disease. <laughs> that's the thing. Let's be clear. And Porsche will do that to you for sure. But it had, I mean, it's also a connection to Porsche as well. There's something within those cars that the way that they're engineered, accompanied with the way that they're marketed, I think you said it perfectly. It's rolling art. Mm -hmm. It's rolling art. It's emotion. You, you, you could argue that it's, um, it's like almost man's, Maybe the bicycle, Porsche, either one, right? Man's best creation. Mm. Like that, Porsche makes a one. Porsche makes a bicycle as well, and it's ten thousand dollars. So if you're ever interested, you got yourself a new there bike with a nice crest on the being, front. Being one with nature, there's something about man and machine is one. Like the best moments I've had driving is in like a nine eleven, one of the two nine elevens I had. That it's just it's the, the, mm. the balance. The, it's it's beautiful. You know, and, and it's, it, it elevates, it's like, it's like our human, our, our best is that. Like they have all those 10,000 pieces, all doing one thing, going in one direction with that feel. And that's the thing I like about Porsche is the feel. You know, it, it, it's not just, you can take any Porsche and it feels the same. It smells the same. The, the, the steering feels the same. The brakes feel the same. The balance, the way they respond, the way, the accelerator responds to the way the way the engine revs and, and it comes back down, the way the shifting snacks, everything is just when the door closes. It it just they, they engineer feel and emotion into it in ways that other cars manufacturers have never but Porsche pays attention attention to it. It's on purpose. And there's something about that that is just I don't know. Like when you're in that moment driving down a windy mountain road and you're hauling 
full gas and you are one with the vehicle and you're aware of the balance and what the four tires are doing and aware of every input you have is it's 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 life at its best there's very few things that are as good as that ever beautiful even in the snow there's just some feeling about it that just uh, i think we talked about it last time where it's it's like you can see how other people react but it's also the the loved ones and seeing how they react to it and how uh, my dad always said we have these cars uh, but these are our cars and we don't talk about them and and now as i've grown up i understand that on another level because the owners are truly one with their cars they feel that emotion with the car and it is truly their baby they have put money into it they feel it it's something that they've worked for and there's an attachment to it when you get in and whether you're driving to the grocery store or you're driving down that windy back road you feel one with that car and it gets into every single one of those emotions when you're in the driver's seat to really hone in on the road it is not the speed. Everyone thinks it's the speed. No, no. And it's not how fast you go. It's how you go fast. It's how you go. It's how it steers, how it brakes, how it accelerates. It's how the revs go up and come down. It's, it's how it, it, you, you feel it, you sense it. it it's, it's, it's part of you in a way that no other vehicle, with the exception of the, of the GTI I talked about, mm-hmm. I've never had that before. I mean, there's very few things that are that feel that way, that are, are literally an extension of you. And it, that's why to me, it's like a, a Pinarello uh, Tour de France race bike. Same thing, it's part of you. You can't separate you from the bike. Same thing with the Porsche 911. It just, it just has that, it, it's an extension of you. You put it on, right? And, and it, even if you're going 30 miles an hour, it's awesome. If you're going through a parking lot, it's awesome, <laughs> right? If you're going 90 down a windy road, it's, it has the same feel. I mean, there's no vehicle out there that you can have fun at 30. I mean, you go, man, it's just the balance. It's it just, yeah, it's something so it's beautiful. So when you, when you finally felt it, why do you keep reading? The magazines? Yes. Um, I don't know. I was driven to understand why. I was really, and now obviously with the internet, it's really easy to pull mm-hmm. hundreds of articles on, on anything. And I've been about understanding why they work, understanding, what, what I'd like to do was read about a car, then go test drive it. Love and it. I, I did that for years. I haven't done that recently, but, but to validate my feeling of what was going on, mm-hmm. right? So I, they read what they, everyone said about it. And I'd say, am I getting the same feeling or not? And then that way I, I would calibrate what I'm sensing in a car versus what they're sensing. And then I would pick up a lot of the, um, the race driving stuff. And so I'd really study about uh, cornering, weight, distribution, balance, uh, apex, all that. And I really, really pay attention to driving. Like when I drive, I really watch when I drive. Like I really, really pay attention to every second is deliberate. So I think about weight transfer. I think about uh, trail braking. I think about application of accelerator. And I, I love that even on the windy roads here just it, it does something about paying attention to how you're driving and getting the most out of it um is is 
even if it's not a Porsche, it to me is fascinating. So that's why I would read all this stuff to get a sense for what is this like? What do these experts say about how you corner this versus this? And, um, and certainly when you pick up, um, you know, amazing race books, a lot of them were by, by Porsche drivers. Paul Freire has one, which is a famous Porsche race car driver that is considered one of the Bibles of, of how to be a race car driver. But he talks about, you know, uh, the, 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 a curve and it, it's four different dimensions of, of going into a curve and the, the early turn in and the apex and how you align to the front stretch and how you uh, trail braking and apply accelerate all that is and you realize oh that's what i'm supposed to feel i'm supposed to feel that that shift i'm supposed to feel how that weight moves here so that's how you, you load up the weight here to get the weight transfer and all that stuff is it's beautiful I mean, you experience it. I remember the first time I sat in a Taycan and you had all the people doubting it, that it was not going to be the same as all the other Porsches. It's all electric. So this is not natural. And you saw a similar shift with the going from air cooled to water cooled. But this shift was something that the customer base was not comfortable with. And Porsche was ready to take that jump. And I remember sitting in that car and thank goodness I was in the passenger seat. I had one of the drive instructors take me on a hot lap around the track and we pulled up in the car. It's, it's a quiet car, uh, obviously. And we get ready to engage launch control. And that's where the nose slants down to anticipate the acceleration that's about to happen. And he looked at me and he said, are you ready? He said, I think so. And before I could say it, you weren't ready. I wasn't ready. The, the amount of G-force that hits you in the face is so hard to explain, especially when you can't hear anything. It is some of the most unbelievable f- feeling that I've ever had in a- Your eyeballs in, going back in your head. It's unbelievable because you just don't, you don't have any other sense to go with it other than that feeling of getting hit in the face. And it's just like, just hang on because this is happening. And it was some of the most fun driving I've ever experienced in my life. And it felt like a Porsche, which so many people doubted, but they just know how to get it. Yeah. Right. I, I heard it. Like I was listening to a podcast about that and they said it drives, it, it, it steers like a Porsche. Oh, it which dr- is, is, yeah, is a thing. And then the problem with Porsche is it has baggage not like BMW is baggage, but there's true enthusiasts. And then there's people who just get into it because it, it's, it's an expensive car and it looks right, cool. And right. you got to separate those out because it's not the same as the folks who truly get it. I, I love when I run into an old guy who's running some mid-70s air-cooled and he's all messed up and he's just a, a lifer. And yes. you know he's doing it because he just can't get enough of an air-cooled Porsche. And he's not doing it because it's cool. He's doing it because it's beautiful. Yeah, right. of, there's something right. about that it's just fantastic yeah and there's we have a, a guy that works at the experience center who's up there in age probably mid 70s early 80s and he still goes to road atlanta to race once a month in open a- air in open top cars and it's like oh my gosh that's where you have that true passion and you're able to just do what you love and that's what I try to do over this quarantine with one, this podcast and two with playing lacrosse is I really wanted to find what I loved and yeah, yeah. 
And I hope I get the opportunity to one day have a portrait of my own to then say, this is exactly what it feels like to be one with the car. Yeah. Although the Caymans, if you want to get an early one, the mm. Cayman is very achievable. Yeah. Right. I mean, from a standpoint of, of cost and, and some would argue it's probably a better band's car. Um, but, you know, certainly that's something you probably could afford um, an early one. Um, yeah. But it, it, it's also responsible and, and, and it's, it's beautifully balanced. I mean, it's fantastic. Right. And it's, it's a no brainer. Right. But I think being able to work with Porsche and understand that you're fulfilling every customer's dream and you're a part of it in some way, whether it's a greeting, whether it's just that simple conversation of you know, what year is your car? Do you have a car? Do you want a car? And everybody that's experienced a Porsche has that. And I think to be able to be a part of it has been something for me that un it really is a simulation of this podcast to say, let's hear your story and let's hear how it relates to mine. And let's find that common ground because no matter who I'm talking to, no matter what walk of life they're coming in from, you can relate to them on a level that's really personal to them and also very vulnerable because they went through something to get that Porsche. And like you said, there obviously are those different people who don't have that passion. But in my experience, the majority of people have it and you get to feel that emotion. And that's been some of the most incredible experiences other than representing the brand is having those conversations and really getting to understand what drives people to, to love these cars. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I, I shouldn't have sold my Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's that's what I hear the most. <laughs> what, was I, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? Priorities change, and you know what? That's all about the journey. And Steve, I've enjoyed this conversation just like I enjoy all the other ones. Yeah. But I think this journey to where we are today has been incredible. I enjoy every conversation we have together, and this one's no different. So thank you very much for taking this time. Yep. Love you, man. Have a good evening. Thanks, love you too. Way. Yep. Talk yep. soon. Talk to you. Bye. Bye-bye. so much to Steve for joining the podcast. I had a blast and we may even have some things cooking up for the future. So stay tuned. And next week we have my good friend, Malcolm Davis. Malcolm and I went to high school together and I credit him for giving me the collegiate athletic mindset that I have today. So I look forward to releasing that experience next week. And I appreciate you all for listening to this one. We'll see you next Sunday. Sun, he said.